Section 16 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 1. The first evening after the marriage night, Saxon met Billy at the door as he came up the front steps. After their embrace, and as they crossed the parlor, hand in hand toward the kitchen, he filled his lungs through his nostrils with audible satisfaction. My, but this house smells good, Saxon. It ain't the coffee. I can smell that, too. It's the whole house. It smells, well, it just smells good to me, that's all. He washed and dried himself at the sink, while she heated the frying pan on the front hole of the stove, with the lid off. As he wiped his hands, he watched her keenly, and cried out with approbation as she dropped the steak in the frying pan. Where'd you learn to cook steak on a dry, hot pan? It's the only way, but darn few women seem to know about it. As she took the cover off a second frying pan and stirred the savory contents with a kitchen knife, he came behind her, passed his arms under her armpits with down-drooping hands upon her breasts, and bent his head over her shoulder till cheek touched cheek. Mmm, fried potatoes with onions, like Mother used to make. Me for them. Don't they smell good, though? Mmm. The pressure of his hands relaxed, and his cheek slid carelessly past hers as he started to release her. Then his hands closed down again. She felt his lips on her hair and heard his advertised inhalation of delight. Mmm, don't you smell good yourself? though I never understood what they meant when they said a girl was sweet. I know now, and you're the sweetest I ever knew. His joy was boundless. When he returned from combing his hair in the bedroom and sat down at the small table opposite her, he paused with knife and fork in hand. Say, being married is a whole lot more than it's cracked up to be by most married folks. Honest to God, Saxon, we can show him a few... We can give em cards and spades and little casino and win out on big casino and the aces. I've got but one kick coming. The instant apprehension in her eyes provoked a chuckle from him. And that is that we didn't get married quick enough. Just think. I've lost a whole week of this. Her eyes shone with gratitude and happiness, and in her heart she solemnly pledged herself that never, in all their married life, would it be otherwise. Supper finished, she cleared the table and began washing the dishes at the sink. When he evinced the intention of wiping them, she caught him by the lapels of the coat and backed him into a chair. You sit right there, if you know what's good for you. Now be good and mind what I say. Also, you will smoke a cigarette. No, you're not going to watch me. There's the morning paper beside you, and if you don't hurry to read it, I'll be through these dishes before you've started. As he smoked and read, she continually glanced across at him from her work. One thing more, she thought, slippers, and then the picture of comfort and content would be complete. Several minutes later, Billy put the paper aside with a sigh. It's no use, he complained, I can't read. What's the matter, she teased, eyes weak. Nope, they're sore. 
and there's only one thing to do em any good, and that's looking at you. All right, then, baby Billy, I'll be through in a jiffy. When she had washed the dish towel and scaled out the sink, she took off her kitchen apron, came to him, and kissed first one eye and then the other. How are they now, cured? They feel somewhat better already. She repeated the treatment. And now? Still better. And now? Almost well. After he had adjudged them well, he ouched and informed her that there was still some hurt in the right eye. In the course of treating it, she cried out as in pain. Billy was all alarm. What is it? What hurt you? My eyes, they're hurting like sixty. And Billy became physician for a while, and she the patient. When the cure was accomplished, she led him into the parlor where, by the open window, they succeeded in occupying the same Morris chair. It was the most expensive comfort in the house. It had cost seven dollars and a half, and though it was grander than anything she had dreamed of possessing, the extravagance of it had worried her in a half-guilty way all day. The salt chill of the air that is the blessing of all the Bay Cities after the sun goes down crept in about them. They heard the switch engine puffing in the railroad yards and the rumbling thunder of the Seventh Street local slowing down in its run from the mole to stop at West Oakland Station. From the street came the noise of children playing in the summer night and from the steps of the house next door, low voices of gossiping housewives. Can you beat it, Billy murmured. When I think of that six-dollar furnished room of mine, it makes me sick to think what I was missing all the time. But there's one satisfaction. If I'd changed it sooner, I wouldn't have had you. You see, I didn't know you existed, only until a couple of weeks ago. His hand crept along her bare forearm and up and partly under the elbow sleeve. Your skin's so cool, he said. It ain't cool, it's cool. It feels good to the hand. Pretty soon you'll be calling me your cold storage baby, she laughed. And your voice is cool, he went on. It gives me the feeling, just as your hand does when you rest it on my forehead. It's funny, I can't explain it, but your voice just goes all through me cool and fine. It's like a wind of coolness, just right. It's the first of the sea breeze setting in the afternoon after a scorching hot morning. And sometimes, when you talk low, it sounds round and sweet, like the cello in the MacDonald Theater Orchestra. And it never goes high up or sharp or squeaky or scratchy, like some women's voices, when they're mad or fresh or excited till they remind me of a bum phonograph record. Why, your voice, it just goes through me till I'm all trembling, like with the everlasting cool of it. It's, it's straight delicious. I guess angels in heaven, if there is any, must have voices like that. After a few minutes in which so inexpressible was her happiness that she could only pass her hand through his hair and cling to him, he broke out again. I'll tell you what you remind me of. Did you ever see a thoroughbred mare, all shining in the sun, with hair like satin and skin so thin and tender, 
that the least touch of the whip leaves a mark, all fine nerves and delicate and sensitive, that'll kill the toughest bronco when it comes to endurance, and that can strain a tendon in a flash, or catch death of cold without a blanket for a night. And I want to tell you, there ain't many beautifuler sights in this world. And they're that fine strung and sensitive and delicate. You gotta handle em right side up, glass with care. Well, that's what you remind me of. And I'm going to make it my job to see that you get handled and gentled in the same way. You're as different from other women as that kind of mare is from scrub workhorse mares. You're a thoroughbred. You're clean-cut and spirited. And your lines? Say, do you know you've got some figure? Well, you have. Talk about Annette Kellerman. You can give her cards and spades. She's Australian, and you're American. Only your figure ain't. You're different. You're nifty. I don't know how to explain it. Other women ain't built like you. You belong in some other country. You're Frenchy, that's what. You're built like a French woman, and more than that, the way you walk, move, stand up or sit down, or don't do anything. And he, who had never been out of California, or for that matter, had never slept a night away from his birth town of Oakland, was right in his judgment. She was a flower of the Anglo-Saxon stock, a rarity in the exceptional smallness and fineness of hand and foot and bone and grace of flesh and carriage some throwback across the face of time to the foreign Norman French that had intermingled with the sturdy Saxon breed. And in the way you carry your clothes, they belong to you. They seem just as much part of you as the cool of your voice and skin. They're always all right and couldn't be better. And you know, a fellow kind of likes to be seen tagging around with a woman like you that wears her clothes like a dream. And here's the other fellow say, Who's Billy's new skirt? She's a peach, ain't she? Wouldn't I like to win her, though? And all that sort of talk. And Saxon, her cheek pressed to his, knew that she was paid in full for all her midnight sewing and the torturing hours of drowsy stitching when her head nodded with the weariness of the day's toil, while she recreated for herself filched ideas from the dainty garments that had steamed under her passing iron. Say, Saxon, I got a new name for you. You're my tonic kid. That's what you are, the tonic kid. And you'll never get tired of me, she queried. Tired? Why, we were made for each other. Isn't it wonderful our meeting, Billy? We might have never met. It was just by accident that we did. We was born lucky, he proclaimed. That's a cinch. Maybe it was more than luck, she ventured. Sure, it just had to be. It was fate. Nothing could have kept us apart. They sat on in a silence that was quick with unuttered love, till she felt him slowly draw her more closely, and his lips came near to her ear as they whispered, What do you say we go to bed? Many evenings they spent like this, varied with an occasional dance, with trips to the Orifum and to Bell's Theater, or to the moving picture shows, or to the Friday night band concerts in City Hall Park. Often, on Sunday, 
She prepared a lunch, and he drove her out into the hills behind Prince and King, whom Billy's employer was still glad to have him exercise. Each morning Saxon was called by the alarm clock. The first morning he had insisted upon getting up with her and building the fire in the kitchen stove. She gave in the first morning, but after that she laid the fire in the evening, so that all that was required was the touching of a match to it, and in bed she compelled him to remain for at least a little doze, ere she called him for breakfast. For the first several weeks she prepared his lunch for him, then for a week he came down to dinner. After that he was compelled to take his lunch with him. It depended on how far distant the teaming was done. "'You're not starting right with a man,' Mary cautioned. "'You wait on him hand and foot. You'll spoil him if you don't watch out. It's him that ought to be waiting on you.' "'He's the breadwinner,' Saxon replied. "'He works harder than I, and I've got more time than I know what to do with. Time to burn. Besides, I want to wait on him because I love to, and because, well, anyway, I want to. End of section 16 Section 17 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 2 Despite the fastidiousness of her housekeeping, Saxon, once she had systemized it, found time and despair on her hands, especially during the periods in which her husband carried his lunch and there was no midday meal to prepare. She had a number of hours each day to herself. Trained for years to the routine of factory and laundry work, she could not abide this unaccustomed idleness. She could not bear to sit and do nothing. While she could not pay calls on her girlhood friends, for they still worked in factory and laundry, nor was she acquainted with the wives of the neighborhood, save for one strange old woman who lived in the house next door and with whom Saxon had exchanged snatches of conversation over the backyard division fence. One time-consuming diversion of which Saxon took advantage was free and unlimited baths. In the orphan asylum, and in Sarah's house, she had been used to but one bath a week. As she grew to womanhood, she had attempted more frequent baths, but the effort proved disastrous, arousing first Sarah's derision and next her wrath. Sarah had crystallized in the era of the weekly Saturday night bath, and any increase in this cleansing function was regarded by her as putting on airs, and as an insinuation against her own cleanliness. Also, it was an extravagant misuse of fuel, and occasioned extra towels in the family wash. But now, in Billy's house, with her own stove, her own tub and towels and soap, and no one to say her nay, Saxon was guilty of a daily orgy. True, it was only a common wash-tub, that she placed on the kitchen floor and filled by hand. But it was a luxury that had taken her twenty-four years to achieve. It was from the strange woman next door that Saxon received a hint, dropped in casual conversation, of what proved the culminating joy of bathing, a simple thing, 
a few drops of druggist ammonia in the water, but Saxon had never heard of it before. She was destined to learn much more from the strange woman. The acquaintance had begun one day when Saxon, in the back yard, was hanging out a couple of corset covers and several pieces of her finest undergarments. The woman leaning on the rail of her back porch had caught her eye and nodded, and it seemed to Saxon, half to her and half to the underlinen on the line. "'You're newly married, aren't you?' the woman asked. "'I'm Mrs. Higgins. I prefer my first name, which is Mercedes.' "'And I'm Mrs. Roberts,' Saxon replied, thrilling to the newness of the designation on her tongue. "'My first name is Saxon.' "'Strange name for a Yankee woman,' the other commented. "'Oh, but I'm not Yankee,' Saxon exclaimed. "'I'm Californian.' "'La, la,' laughed Mercedes Higgins. "'I forgot I was in America. "'In other lands, all Americans are called Yankees. "'It is true that you are newly married?' Saxon nodded with a happy sigh. Mercedes sighed, too. "'Oh, you happy, soft, beautiful young thing!' I could envy you to hatred, you with all the man-world ripe to be twisted about your pretty little fingers, and you don't realize your fortune. No one does, until it's too late." Saxon was puzzled and disturbed, though she answered readily, "'Oh, but I do know how lucky I am. I have the finest man in the world.' Mercedes Higgins sighed again and changed the subject. She nodded her head at the garments. I see you like pretty things. It is good judgment for a young woman. They're the bait for men, half the weapons in the battle. They win men, and they hold men. She broke off to demand almost fiercely, and you, you would keep your husband, always, always, if you can? I intend to. I will make him love me always and always. Saxon ceased, troubled and surprised, that she should be so intimate with a stranger. "'Tis a queer thing, this love of men,' Mercedes said. "'And a failing of all women is to believe that they know men like books. And with breaking hearts die they do, most women, out of their ignorance of men, and still foolishly believing they know all about them. Oh, la la, the little fools! And so you say, little married woman, that you will make your man love you always and always. And so they all say it knowing men and the queerness of man's love the way they think they do. Easier it is to win the capital prize in the little Louisiana, but the little new married woman never know it until too late. But you, you have begun well. Stay by your pretties and your looks. Twas so you won your man, tis so you'll hold him. But that is not all. Sometime I will talk with you and tell you what few women trouble to know, what few women ever come to know. Saxon, tis a strong and handsome name for a woman. But you don't look it. Oh, I've watched you. French you are, with a Frenchiness beyond dispute. Tell Mr. Roberts I congratulate him on his good taste. She paused, her hand on the knob of her kitchen door. And come see me sometime. You will never be sorry. I can teach you much. Come in the afternoon. My man is a night watchman in the yards and sleeps of mornings. He's sleeping now. 
Saxon went into the house, puzzling and pondering. Anything but ordinary was this lean, dark-skinned woman, with the face withered, as if scorched in great heats, and the eyes, large and black, that flashed and flamed with advertisement of an unquenched inner conflagration. Old she was. Saxon caught herself debating anywhere between fifty and seventy, and her hair, which had once been black as black, was streaked plentifully with gray. Especially noteworthy to Saxon was her speech. Good English it was, better than that to which Saxon was accustomed. Yet the woman was not American. On the other hand, she had no perceptible accent. Rather were her words touched by a foreignness so elusive that Saxon could not analyze nor place it. Uh-huh, Billy said, when she had told him that evening of the day's event. So she's Mrs. Higgins. He's a watchman. He's got only one arm. Old Higgins and her, a funny bunch, the two of them. The people's scared of her, some of them. The Dagos and some of the old Irish dames think she's a witch. Won't have a thing to do with her. Bert was telling me about it. Why, Saxon, do you know? Some of them believe if she was to get mad at em, or didn't like their mugs or anything, that all she got to do is look at em, and they'd curl up their toes and croak. One of the fellows that works at the stable, you've seen him, Henderson. He lives around the corner on Fifth. He says she's Bughouse. Oh, I don't know, Saxon defended her new acquaintance. She may be crazy, but she says the same thing you are always saying. She says my form is not American, but French. Then I take my hat off to her, Billy responded. No wheels in her head, if she says that. Take it from me. She's a wise gazebo. And she speaks good English, Billy, like a schoolteacher, like what I guess my mother used to speak. She's educated. She ain't no fool, or she wouldn't size you up the way she did. She told me to congratulate you on your good taste in marrying me, Saxon laughed. She did, huh? Then give her my love, me for her, because she knows a good thing when she sees it, and she ought to be congratulating you on your good taste in me. It was on another day that Mercedes Higgins nodded, half to Saxon and half to the dainty women's things Saxon was hanging on the line. I've been worrying over your washing, little new wife, was her greeting. Oh, but I worked in the laundry for years, Saxon said quickly. Mercedes sneered scornfully. Steam laundry. That's business, and it's stupid. Only common things should go to a steam laundry. That is their punishment for being common. But the pretties, the dainties, the flimsies, la la, my dear, their washing is an art. It requires wisdom, genius, and discretion, fine as the clothes are fine. I will give you a recipe for homemade soap. It will not harden the texture. It will give whiteness and softness and life. You can wear them long, and fine white clothes are to be loved a long time. Oh, fine washing is a refinement, an art. It is to be done as an artist paints a picture, or writes a poem with love, holily, a true sacrament of beauty. I shall teach you better ways, my dear, better ways than you Yankees know. I shall teach you new pretties. She nodded her head to Saxon's underlinen on the line. I see you make little laces, 
I know all the laces. The Belgian, the Maltese, the Mechlin. Oh, the many, many loves of laces. I shall teach you some of the simpler ones, so that you can make them for yourself. For the brave man you are to make love you, always and always. On her first visit to Mercedes Higgins, Saxon received the recipe for homemade soap, and her head was filled with a minutia of instruction in the art of fine washing. Further, she was fascinated and excited by all the newness and strangeness of the withered old woman who blew upon her the breath of wider lands and seas beyond the horizon. "'You are Spanish?' Saxon ventured. "'No, and yes, and neither, and more. My father was Irish. My mother, Peruvian Spanish. Tis after her I took, in color and looks, in other ways after my father, the blue-eyed Celt with the fairy song on his tongue and the restless feet that stole the rest of him away to far wandering, and the feet of him that he lent me have led me away on as far wide roads as ever his led him. Saxon remembered her school geography, and with her mind's eye she saw a certain outline map of a continent with jiggly, wavering parallel lines that denoted coast. Oh, she cried, then you are South American. Mercedes shrugged her shoulders. I had to be born somewhere. It was a great ranch, my mother's. You could put all Oakland in one of its smaller pastures. Mercedes Higgins sighed cheerfully, and for a time was lost in retrospection. Saxon was curious to hear more about this woman, who must have lived much as the Spanish Californians had lived in the old days. "'You received a good education,' she said tentatively. "'Your English is perfect.' "'Ah, the English came afterward, and not in school. But as it goes, yes, a good education in all things, but the most important, men. That, too, came afterward. And little my mother dreamed, she was a grand lady, what you call a cattle queen, little she dreamed my fine education was to fit me in the end for a night watchman's wife. She laughed genuinely at the grotesqueness of the idea. Night watchmen, laborers, why we had hundreds of them, yes, thousands that toiled for us. The peons, they are like what you call slaves, almost, and the cowboys, who could ride two hundred miles between side and side of the ranch, and in the big house, servants beyond remembering or counting. La, la, in my mother's house were many servants. Mercedes Higgins was voluble as a Greek, and wandered on in reminiscence. But our servants were lazy and dirty. The Chinese are the servants par excellence. So are the Japanese, when you find a good one, but not so good as the Chinese. The Japanese maidservants are pretty and merry, but you never know the moment they will leave you. The Hindus are not strong, but very obedient. They look upon sahibs and men sahibs as gods. I was a men sahib, which means woman. I once had a Russian cook who always spat in the soup for luck. It was very funny, but we put up with it. It was the custom. How you must have traveled to have such strange servants, Saxon encouraged. The old woman laughed corroboration. And the strangest of all, down in the South Seas, black slaves, 
little kinky-haired cannibals with bones through their noses. When they did not mind, or when they stole, they were tied up to a coconut palm behind the compound and lashed with whips of rhinoceros hide. They were from an island of cannibals and headhunters, and they never cried out. It was their pride. There was little Vibi, only twelve years old. He waited on me, and when his back was cut in shreds, I wept over him. He would only laugh and say, Short time, little bit. I'd take a head belonging. Big fellow, white master. That was Bruce Anstey, the Englishman who whipped him. But little Vibi never got the head. He ran away, and the bushman cut off his own head and ate every bit of him. Saxon was chilled, and her face was grave, but Mercedes Higgins rattled on. And those were wild, gay, savage days, would you believe it, my dear? In three years, those Englishmen of the plantation drank up oceans of champagne and scotch whiskey and dropped thirty thousand pounds on the adventure. Not dollars, pounds, which means one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. They were princes while it lasted. It was splendid, glorious. It was mad, mad. I sold half my beautiful jewels in New Zealand before I got started again. Bruce Anstey blew out his brains at the end. Roger went mate on a trader with a black crew for eight pounds a month, and Jack Gilbreth, he was the rarest of them all. His people were wealthy and titled, and he went home to England and sold cat's meat, sat around their big house till they gave him more money to start a rubber plantation in the East Indies somewhere, on Sumatra, I think, or was it New Guinea? And Saxon, back in her own kitchen and preparing supper for Billy, wondered what lusts and rapacities had led the old burnt-faced woman from the big Peruvian ranch through all the world to West Oakland and Barry Higgins. Old Barry was not the sort who would fling away his share of $150,000, much less ever attain to such opulence. Besides, she had mentioned the names of other men, but not his. Much more Mercedes had talked, in snatches and fragments. There seemed no great country, no city of the old world or the new, in which she had not been. She had even been in Klondike ten years before, in a half-dozen flashing sentences, picturing the fur-clad, bemoccasined miners, sewing the barroom floors with thousands dollars' worth of gold dust. Always, it seemed to Saxon, Mrs. Higgins had been with men to whom money was as water. End of Section 17「Section 18 of the Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Three. Saxon, brooding over her problem of retaining Billy's love, of never staling the freshness of their feeling for each other, and of never descending from the heights which at present they were treading, felt herself impelled toward Mrs. Higgins. She knew. Surely she must know, had she not hinted knowledge beyond ordinary women's knowledge. Several weeks went by, during which Saxon was often with her, but Mrs. Higgins talked of all other matters, 
taught Saxon the making of certain simple laces, and instructed her in the arts of washing and of marketing. And then one afternoon Saxon found Mrs. Higgins more voluble than usual, with words clean uttered that rippled and tripped in their haste to escape. Her eyes were flaming. So flamed her face. Her words were flames. There was a smell of liquor in the air, and Saxon knew that the old woman had been drinking. Nervous and frightened, at the same time fascinated, Saxon hemstitched a linen handkerchief intended for Billy, and listened to Mercedes' wild flow of speech. Listen, my dear, I shall tell you about the world of men. Do not be stupid like all your people who think me foolish and a witch with the evil eye. Ha! Huh. When I think of silly Maggie Donahue pulling the shawl across her baby's face when we pass each other on the sidewalk. A witch. I have been, tis true, but my witchery was with men. Oh, I am wise, very wise, my dear. I shall tell you of women's ways with men, and of men's ways with women, the best of them and the worst of them, of the brute that is in all men, of the queerness of them that breaks the heart of stupid women who do not understand. And all women are stupid. I am not stupid. La, la, listen. I am an old woman, and like a woman, I'll not tell you how old I am. Yet can I hold a man? Yet would I hold a man, toothless, and a hundred, my nose touching my chin. Not the young men. They were mine in my younger days. But the old men has befit my years. As well for me the power is mine. In all this world I am without kin or cash. Only have I wisdom and memories, memories that are ashes, but royal ashes, jeweled ashes. Old women such as I starve and shiver, or accept the pauper's dole and the pauper's shroud. Not I. I hold my man. True, tis only Barry Higgins. Old Barry. Heavy, an ox, but a male man, my dear, and queer as all men are queer. Tis true he has one arm. She shrugged her shoulders. A compensation. He cannot beat me, and the old bones are tender when the round flesh thins to strings. But when I think of my wild young lovers, princes, mad with the madness of youth, I have lived. It is enough. I regret nothing. And with old Barry, I have my surety of a bite to eat and a place by the fire. And why? Because I know men, and shall never lose my cunning to hold them. Tis bittersweet, the knowledge of them, more sweet than bitter. Men and men and men. Not stupid dolts, not fat bourgeois swine of businessmen, but men of temperament, of flame and fire, madmen, maybe, but a lawless royal race of madmen. Little wife-woman, you must learn. Variety, there lies the magic. Tis the golden key, tis the toy that amuses. Without it in the wife, the man is a Turk. With it, he is her slave and faithful. A wife must be many wives. If you would have your husband's love, you must be all women to him. You must be ever new, with the dew of newness ever sparkling, a flower that never blooms to the fullness that fades. 
You must be a garden of flowers, ever new, ever fresh, ever different. And in your garden the man must never pluck the last of your posies. Listen, little wife-woman, in the garden of love is a snake. It is the commonplace. Stamp on its head, or it will destroy the garden. Remember the name, commonplace. Never be too intimate. Men only seem gross. Women are more gross than men. No, do not argue, little new wife. You are an infant woman. Women are less delicate than men. Do I not know? Of their own husbands they will relate the most intimate love secrets to other women. Men never do this of their wives. Explain it. There is only one way. In all things of love, women are less delicate. It is their mistake. It is the father and the mother of commonplace. And it is the commonplace, like a loathsome slug that beslimes and destroys love. Be delicate, little wife-woman. Never be without your veil, without many veils. Veil yourself in a thousand veils, all shimmering and glittering with costly textures and precious jewels. Never let the last veil be drawn. Against tomorrow, array yourself with more veils, even more veils, veils without end. Yet the many veils must not seem many. Each veil must seem the only one between you and your hungry lover, who will have nothing less than all of you. Each time he must seem to get all, to tear aside the last veil that hides you. He must think so. It must not be so. There will be no satiety. For on the morrow he will find another last veil that has escaped him. Remember, each veil must seem the last and only one. Always you must seem to abandon all to his arms. Always you must reserve more than one on the morrow, and on all the morrows you may abandon. Of such is variety, surprise, so that your man's pursuit will be everlasting, so that his eyes will look to you for newness, and not to other women. It was the freshness and the newness of your beauty, and you, the mystery of you, that won your man. When a man is plucked and smelled all the sweetness of a flower, he looks for other flowers. It is his queerness. You must ever remain a flower almost plucked, yet never plucked, stored with vats of sweet, unbroached, though ever broached. Stupid women, and all are stupid, think the first winning of the man the final victory. Then they settle down and grow fat and stale and dead and heartbroken. Alas, they are so stupid. But you, little infant woman, with your first victory, you must make your love life an unending chain of victories. Each day you must win your man again. And when you have won the last victory, when you can find no more to win, then ends love. Finis is written, and your man wanders in strange gardens. Remember, love must be kept insatiable. It must have an appetite knife-edged and never satisfied. You must feed your lover well, ah, very well, most well, give, give, yet send him away hungry to come back to you for more. Mrs. Higgins stood up suddenly and crossed out of the room. Saxon had not failed to note the lightness and grace in that lean and withered body. She watched for Mrs. Higgins' return, 
and knew that the litheness and grace had not been imagined. Scarcely have I told you the first letter in love's alphabet, said Mercedes Higgins, as she reseated herself. In her hands was a tiny instrument, beautifully grained and richly brown, which resembled a guitar, save that it bore four strings. She swept them back and forth with rhythmic forefinger and lifted a voice, thin and mellow, in a fashion of melody that was strange, and in a foreign tongue, warm-voweled, all-voweled, and love-exciting. Softly throbbing, voice and strings arose a sensuous crest of song, died away to whisperings and caresses, drifted through love-dusks and twilights, or swelled again to love-cries barbarically imperious, in which were woven plaintive calls and madness of invitation and promise. It went through Saxon until she was, as this instrument, swept with passional strains. It seemed to her a dream, and almost was she dizzy, when Mercedes Higgins ceased. If your man had clasped the last of you, and if all of you were known to him as an old story, yet did you sing that one song as I have sung it, yet would his arms again go out to you, and his eyes grow warm with the old mad lights. Do you see? Do you understand, little wife-woman? Saxon could only nod, her lips too dry for speech. The golden koa, the king of woods. Mercedes was crooning over the instrument. The ukulele, that is what the Hawaiians call it, which means, my dear, the jumping flea. They are golden-fleshed, the Hawaiians, a race of lovers, all in the warm cool of the tropic night where the trade winds blow. Again she struck the strings. She sang in another language which Saxon deemed must be French. It was a gaily devilish lilt, tripping and tickling. Her large eyes at times grew large and wider, and again narrowed in enticement and wickedness. When she ended, she looked to Saxon for a verdict. I don't like that one so well, Saxon said. Mercedes shrugged her shoulders. They all have their worth, little infant woman, with so much to learn. There are times when men may be one with wine. There are times when men may be one with the wine of song, so queer they are. La, la, so many ways, so many ways. There are your pretties, my dear, your dainties. They are magic nets. No fisherman upon the sea ever tangled fish more successfully than we women with our flimsies. You are on the right path. I have seen men enmeshed by a corset cover no prettier, no daintier than these of yours I have seen on the line. I have called the washing of fine linen an art, but it is not for itself alone. The greatest of the arts is the conquering of men. Love is the sum of all the arts, as it is a reason for their existence. Listen, in all times and ages have been women, great wise women. They did not need to be beautiful. Greater than all women's beauty was their wisdom. Princes and potentates bowed down before them. Nations battled over them. Empires crashed because of them. Religions were founded on them. 
Aphrodite, Astarte, the worship of the night. Listen, infant woman, of the great woman who conquered worlds of men. And thereafter Saxon listened, in amaze, to what almost seemed a wild farrago, save that the strange, meaningless phrases were fraught with dim, mysterious significance. She caught glimmerings of profounds, inexpressible and unthinkable, that hinted connotations lawless and terrible. The woman's speech was a lava rush, scorching and searing, and Saxon's cheeks and forehead and neck burned with a blush that continuously increased. She trembled with fear, suffered qualms of nausea, thought sometimes that she would faint, so madly reeled her brain. Yet she could not tear herself away, and sat on and on, her sewing forgotten on her lap, staring with inward sight upon a nightmare vision beyond all imagining. At last, when it seemed she could endure no more, and while she was wetting her dry lips to cry out in protest, Mercedes ceased. And here ended the first lesson, she said quite calmly, then laughed with a laughter that was tantalizing and tormenting. What is the matter? You are not shocked? I am frightened, Saxon quavered huskily, with half a sob of nervousness. You frighten me. I am very foolish, and I know so little that I had never dreamed that. Mercedes nodded her head comprehendingly. It is indeed to be frightened at, she said. It is solemn. It is terrible. It is magnificent. End of section 18section 19 of the valley of the moon by jack london this librivox recording is in the public domain book 2 chapter 4 saxon had been clear-eyed all her days though her field of vision had been restricted clear-eyed from her childhood days with the saloon keeper caddy and caddy's good-natured but unmoral spouse she had observed and later generalized much upon sex. She knew the post-nuptial problem of retaining a husband's love, as few wives of any class knew it, just as she knew the prenuptial problem of selecting a husband, as few girls of the working class knew it. She had of herself developed an eminently rational philosophy of love. Instinctively and consciously, too, she had made toward delicacy and shunned the perils of the habitual and commonplace. Thoroughly aware she was that as she cheapened herself, so did she cheapen love. Never in the weeks of their married life had Billy found her dowdy or harshly irritable or lethargic, and she had deliberately permeated her house with her personal atmosphere of coolness and freshness and equableness. Nor had she been ignorant of such assets as surprise and charm. Her imagination had not been asleep, and she had been born with wisdom. In Billy she had won a prize, and she knew it. She appreciated his lover's ardor, and was proud. His open-handed liberality, his desire for everything of the best, his own personal cleanliness and care of himself, she recognized as far beyond the average. He was never coarse, he met delicacy with delicacy, 
though it was obvious to her that the initiative in all such matters lay with her, and must lie with her always. He was largely unconscious of what he did and why, but she knew an awful clarity of judgment. And he was such a prize among men. Despite her clear sight of her problem of keeping Billy a lover, and despite the considerable knowledge and experience arrayed before her mental vision, Mercedes Higgins had spread before her a vastly wider panorama. The old woman had verified her own conclusions, giving her new ideas, clinched old ones, and even savagely emphasized the tragic importance of the whole problem. Much Saxon remembered out of that mad preachment, much she guessed and felt, and much had been beyond her experience and understanding. But the metaphors of the veil and the flowers, and the rules of giving to abandonment, with always more to abandon, she grasped thoroughly, and she was enabled to formulate a bigger and stronger love philosophy. In the light of the revelation, she re-examined the married lives of all she had ever known, and with sharp definiteness as never before. She saw where and why so many of them had failed. With renewed ardor, Saxon devoted herself to her household, to her pretties, and to her charms. She marketed with a keener desire for the best, though never ignoring the need for economy. From the women's pages of the Sunday supplements, and from the women's magazines in the free reading room two blocks away, she gleaned many ideas for the preservation of her looks. In a systematic way she exercised the various parts of her body, and a certain period of time each day she employed in facial exercises and massages for the purpose of retaining the roundness and freshness, the firmness and color. Billy did not know. These intimacies of the toilet were not for him. The results only were his. She drew books from the Carnegie Library and studied physiology and hygiene, and learned a myriad of things about herself and the ways of women health that she had never been taught by Sarah, the women of the orphan asylum, nor by Mrs. Caddy. After long debate, she subscribed to a woman's magazine, the patterns and lessons of which she decided were the best suited to her taste and purse. The other women's magazines she had access to in the free reading room, and more than one pattern of lace and embroidery she copied by means of tracing paper. Before the lingerie windows of the uptown shops, she often stood and studied, nor was she above taking advantage when small purchases were made, of looking over the goods at the hand-embroidered underwear counters. Once she even considered taking up with hand-painted china, but gave over the idea when she learned its expensiveness. She slowly replaced all her simple maiden under-linen garments, which, while still simple, were wrought with beautiful French embroidery, tucks, and drawn work. She crocheted fine edgings, on the inexpensive knitted underwear she wore in the winter. She made little corset covers and chemises of fine but fairly inexpensive lawns, and, with simple flowered designs and perfect laundering, her nightgowns were always sweetly fresh and dainty. In some publication she ran across a brief printed note to the effect that French women were just beginning to wear fascinating 
beruffled caps at the breakfast table. It meant nothing to her that in her case she must first prepare the breakfast. Promptly appeared in the house a yard of dotted Swiss muslin, and Saxon was deep in experimenting on patterns for herself and in sorting her bits of laces for suitable trimmings. The resultant dainty creation won Mercedes Higgins's enthusiastic approval. Saxon made for herself simple house slips of pretty gingham, with neat low collars turned back from her fresh round throat. She crocheted yards of laces for her underwear and made Battenberg in abundance for her table and for the bureau. A great achievement that aroused Billy's applause was an afghan for the bed. She even ventured a rag carpet, which the women's magazines informed her had newly returned into fashion. As a matter of course, she hem-stitched the best table linen and bed linen they could afford. As the happy months went by, she was never idle, nor was Billy forgotten. When the cold weather came on, she knitted him wristlets, which he always religiously wore from the house and pocketed immediately thereafter. The two sweaters she made for him, however, received a better fate, as did the slippers, which she insisted on his slipping into on evenings that they remained at home. The hard, practical wisdom of Mercedes Higgins proved of immense help, for Saxon strove with a fervor almost religious to have everything of the best and at the same time to be saving. Here she faced the financial and economic problem of keeping house in a society where the cost of living rose faster than the wages of industry, and here the old woman taught her the science of marketing so thoroughly that she made a dollar of Billy's go half as far again as the wives of the neighborhoods made the dollars of their men go. Invariably on Saturday night, Billy poured his total wages into her lap. He never asked for an accounting of what she did with it, though he continually reiterated that he had never fed so well in his life. And always the wages, still untouched in her lap, she had him take out what he estimated he would need for spending money for the week to come. Not only did she bid him take plenty, but she insisted on his taking any amount extra that he might desire at any time through the week, and further she insisted he should not tell her what it was for. "'You've always had money in your pocket,' she reminded him, "'and there's no reason marriage should change that. If it did, I'd wish I'd never married you. Oh, I know about men when they get together. First one treats, and then another, and it takes money.' Now, if you can't treat just as freely as the rest of them, why, I know you so well that I know you'd stay away from them, and that wouldn't be right to you, I mean. I want you to be together with men. It's good for a man. And Billy buried her in his arms and swore she was the greatest little bit of woman that ever came down the pike. Why, he jubilated, not only do I feel better and live more comfortable, and hold up my end with the fellows, but I'm actually saving money, or you are for me. Here I am, with furniture being paid for regular every month, and a little woman I'm mad over, and on top of it, money in the bank. How much is it now? 
Sixty-two dollars, she told him. Not bad for a rainy day, but you might get sick or hurt or something happen. It was in midwinter when Billy, with quite a deal of obvious reluctance, broached the money matter to Saxon. His old friend Billy Murphy was laid up with la grippe, and one of his children, playing in the street, had been seriously injured by a passing wagon. Billy Murphy, still feeble after two weeks in bed, had asked Billy for the loan of fifty dollars. "'It's perfectly safe,' Billy concluded to Saxon. "'I've known him since we was kids at the Durant School together. He's straight as a die.' "'That's got nothing to do with it,' Saxon chided. "'If you were single, you'd have lent it to him immediately, wouldn't you?' Billy nodded. "'Then it's no difference because you're married. It's your money, Billy.' "'Not by a damn sight,' he cried. It ain't mine, it's ours, and I wouldn't think of letting anybody have it without seeing you first. I hope you didn't tell him that, she said with quick concern. Nope, Billy laughed. I knew if I did, you'd be madder than a hatter. I just told him I'd try to figure it out. After all, I was sure you'd stand for it if you had it. Oh, Billy, she murmured, her voice rich and low with love. Maybe you don't know it, but that's one of the sweetest things you've said to me since we got married. The more Saxon saw of Mercedes Higgins, the less did she understand her. That the old woman was a close-fisted miser, Saxon soon learned. And this trait she found hard to reconcile with her tales of squandering. On the other hand, Saxon was bewildered by Mercedes' extravagance in personal matters. Her underlinen handmade, of course, was very costly. The table she set for Barry was good, but the table for herself was vastly better. Yet both tables were set on the same table. While Barry contented himself with a solid round steak, Mercedes ate tenderloin. A huge tough mutton chop on Barry's plate would be balanced by tiny French chops on Mercedes' plate. Tea was brewed in separate pots. So was coffee. While Barry gulped twenty-five-cent tea from a large and heavy mug, Mercedes sipped three-dollar tea from a tiny cup of bellique, rose-tinted, fragile as an eggshell. In the same manner, his twenty-five-cent coffee was diluted with milk, her eighty-cent Turkish with cream. That's good enough for the old man, she told Saxon. He knows no better, and it would be a wicked sin to waste it on him. Little traffickings began between the two women. After Mercedes had freely taught Saxon the loose-wristed facility of playing accompaniments on the ukulele, she proposed an exchange. Her time was past, she said, for such frivolities, and she offered the instrument for the breakfast cap of which Saxon had made so good a success. "'It's worth a few dollars,' Mercedes said. "'It cost me twenty, though that was years ago. Yet it is well worth the value of the cap.' "'But wouldn't the cap be frivolous, too?' Saxon queried, though herself well pleased with the bargain. "'Tis not for my gray and hair,' Mercedes frankly disclaimed. "'I shall sell it for the money. Much that I do when the rheumatism is not maddening my fingers, I sell. La-la, my dear. 
"'Tis not old Barry's fifty a month that'll satisfy all my expensive tastes. "'Tis I that makes up the difference. "'And old age needs money as never youth needs it. "'Some day you will learn for yourself.' "'I am well satisfied with the trade,' Saxon said, "'and I shall make me another cap when I can lay aside enough for the material.' "'Make several,' Mercedes advised. "'I'll sell them for you, keeping, of course, a small commission for my services. I can give you six dollars apiece for them. We will consult about them. The profit will more than provide material for your own. End of section 19 Section 20 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Five. Four eventful things happened in the course of the winter. Bert and Mary got married and rented a cottage in the neighborhood three blocks away. Billy's wages were cut, along with the wages of all the teamsters in Oakland. Billy took up shaving with a safety razor, and finally Saxon was proven a false prophet and Sarah a true one. Saxon made up her mind, beyond any doubt, ere she confided the news to Billy. At first, while still suspecting, she had felt a frightened sinking of the heart and fear of the unknown and unexperienced. Then had come economic fear, as she contemplated the increased expense entailed. But by the time she had made surety double sure, all was swept away before a wave of passionate gladness, hers and Billy's. The phrase was continually in her mind, and each recurrent thought of it brought an actual physical pleasure pang to her heart. The night she told the news to Billy, he withheld his own news of the wage cut and joined with her in welcoming the little one. What do we do? Go to the theater to celebrate, he asked, relaxing the pressure of his embrace so that she might speak. Or suppose we stay in, just you and me, and... and the three of us. Stay in, was her verdict. I just want you to hold me, and hold me, and hold me. That's what I wanted to do, only I wasn't sure, after being in the house all day, maybe you'd want to go out. There was frost in the air, and Billy brought the Morris chair in by the kitchen stove. She lay cuddled in his arms, her head on his shoulder, his cheek against her hair. We didn't make no mistake in our lightning marriage, with only a week's courtin', he reflected aloud. Why, Saxon, we've been courtin' ever since, just the same. And now, my God, Saxon, it is too wonderful to be true. Think of it, Arn, the three of us, little rascal. I'll bet he's going to be a boy. And won't I learn him to put up his fists and take care of himself? And swimming, too. If he don't know how to swim by the time he's six. And if he's a girl? She's going to be a boy, Billy retorted, joining in the playful misuse of pronouns. And both laughed and kissed and sighed with content. I'm going to turn pincher now, he announced, after quite an interval of meditation. No more drinks with the boys. It's me for the water wagon, and I'm going to ease down on smokes, huh? Don't see why I can't roll my own cigarettes. 
They're ten times cheaper than tailor-maids. And I can grow a beard. The amount of money the barbers get out of a fellow in a year would keep a baby. Just you let your beard grow, Mr. Roberts, and I'll get a divorce, Saxon threatened. You're just too handsome and strong with a smooth face. I love your face too much to have it covered up. Oh, you dear, you dear, Billy. I never knew what happiness was until I came to live with you. Nor me neither. And it's always going to be so. You can just bet he assured her. I thought I was going to be happy married, she went on, but I never dreamed it would be like this. She turned her head on his shoulder and kissed his cheek. Billy, it isn't happiness, it's heaven. And Billy resolutely kept undivulged the cut in wages. Not until two weeks later, when it went into effect, and he poured the diminished sum into her lap, did he break it to her. The next day, Bert and Mary, already a month married, had Sunday dinner with them, and the matter came up for discussion. Bert was particularly pessimistic, and muttered dark hints of an impending strike in the railroad shops. If you'd all shut your traps, it'd be all right, Mary criticized. These union agitators get the railroad sore. They give me the cramp, the way they butt in and stir up trouble. If I was boss, I'd cut the wages of any man that listened to him. Yet you belong to the Laundry Workers' Union, Saxon rebuked gently. Because I had to, or I wouldn't have got work. And much good it ever done me. But look at Billy, Bert argued. The Teamsters ain't been saying a word, not a peep, and everything lovely, and then, bang, right in the neck, a ten percent cut. Oh, hell, what chance have we got? We lose. There's nothing left for us in this country we've made and our fathers and mothers before us. We're all shot to pieces. We can see our finish. We, the old stock, the children of the white people that broke away from England and licked the tar out of her, that freed the slaves and fought the Indians, and made the West. Any gink with half an eye can see it coming. But what are we going to do about it? Saxon questioned anxiously. Fight, that's all. The country's in the hands of a gang of robbers. Look at the Southern Pacific. It runs California. Aw, oh, rats, Bert, Billy interrupted. You're talking through your lid. No railroad can run the government of California. You're a bonehead, Bert sneered, and some day, when it's too late, you and all the other boneheads will realize the fact. Rotten. I tell you, it stinks. Why, there ain't a man who wants to go to the state legislature but has to make a trip to San Francisco and go into the S.P. offices and take his hat off and humbly ask permission. Why, the governors of California has been railroad governors since before you and I was born. Huh, you can't tell me. We're finished. We're licked to a frazzle. But it'll do my heart good to help string up some of the dirty thieves before I pass out. Do you know what we are? We old white stock that fought in the wars and broke the land and made all this? I'll tell you, we're the last of the Mohegans. He scares me to death he's so violent, Mary said, with unconcealed hostility. If he don't quit shooting off his mouth, he'll get fired from the shops. And then what'll we do? He don't consider me, but I can tell you one thing, all right, all right. 
I'll not go back to the laundry. She held her right hand up and spoke with the solemnity of an oath. Not so as you can see it. Never again for yours truly. Oh, I know what you're driving at, Bert said with asperity. And all I can tell you is, living or dead, in job or out, no matter what happens to me, if you will lead that way, you will, and there's nothing else to it. I guess I kept straight before I met you, she came back, with a toss of the head. And I kept straight after I met you, which is going some if anybody should ask you. Hot words were on Bert's tongue, but Saxon intervened and brought about peace. She was concerned over the outcome of their marriage. Both were high-strung, both were quick and irritable, and their continual clashes did not augur well for their future. The safety razor was a great achievement for Saxon. Privily she conferred with a clerk she knew in Pierce's hardware store and made the purchase. On Sunday morning after breakfast, when Billy was starting to go to the barber shop, she led him into the bedroom, whisked the towel aside, and revealed the razor box, shaving mug, soap, brush, and lather all ready. Billy recoiled, then came back to make curious investigation. He gazed pityingly at the safety razor. Huh, call that a man's tool? It'll do the work, she said. It does it for thousands of men every day. But Billy shook his head and backed away. You shave three times a week, she urged. That's forty-five cents. Call it half a dollar. And there are fifty-two weeks in the year. Twenty-six dollars a year just for shaving. Come on, dear, and try it. Lots of men swear by it. He shook his head mutinously, and the cloudy deeps of his eyes grew more cloudy. She loved that sullen handsomeness that made him look so boyish, and, laughing and kissing him, she forced him into a chair, got off his coat, and unbuttoned shirt and undershirt, and turned them in. Threatening him with, If you open your mouth to kick, I'll shove it in. She coated his face with lather. Wait a minute. She checked him as she reached desperately for the razor. I've been watching the barbers from the sidewalk. This is what they do after the lather is on. And thereupon... She proceeded to rub the lather in with her fingers. There, she said, when she has coated his face a second time, you're ready to begin. Only remember, I'm not going to do this for you. I'm just breaking you in, you see. With great outward show of rebellion, half genuine, half facetious, he made several tentative scrapes with the razor. He winced violently and violently exclaimed, Holy jumping Jehoshaphat! He examined his face in the glass, and a streak of blood showed in the midst of the lather. Cut by a safety razor, by God! Sure, men swear by it. Can't blame em. Cut by a safety. But wait a second, Saxon pleaded. They have to be regulated. The clerk told me. See those little screws? There. That's it. Turn them around. Again Billy applied the blade to his face. After a couple of scrapes, he looked at himself closely in the mirror, grinned, and went on shaving. With swiftness and dexterity, he scraped his face clean of lather. Saxon clapped her hands. 
Fine, Billy approved. Great. Here, give me your hand. See what a good job it made. He started to rub her hand against his cheek. Saxon jerked away with a little cry of disappointment, then examined him closely. It hasn't shaved at all, she said. It's a fake, that's what it is. It cuts the hide, but not the hair. Me for the barber. But Saxon was persistent. You haven't given it a fair trial yet. It was regulated too much. Let me try my hand at it. There, that's it. Betwixt and between. Now lather again and try it. This time the unmistakable sandpapery sound of hair severing could be heard. How is it, she fluttered anxiously. It gets the, ouch, hairs, Billy grunted, frowning and making faces. But it, gee, say, ouch, pulls like Sam Hill. Stay with it, she encouraged. Don't give up the ship, big engine, with a scalp lock. Remember what Bert says, and be the last of the Mohegans. At the end of fifteen minutes he rinsed his face and dried it, sighing with relief. It's a shave in a fashion, Saxon, but I can't say I'm stuck on it. It takes out the nerve. I'm as weak as a cat. He groaned with sudden discovery of fresh misfortune. What's the matter now? she asked. The back of my neck. How can I shave the back of my neck? I'll have to pay a barber to do it. Saxon's consternation was tragic, but it only lasted a moment. She took the brush in her hand. Sit down, Billy. What, you? he demanded indignantly. Yes, me. If any barber is good enough to shave your neck, and then I am, too. Billy moaned and groaned in the abjectness of humility and surrender, and let her have her way. There, and a good job, she informed him when she had finished, as easy as falling off a log, and besides, it means twenty-six dollars a year. And you'll buy the crib, the baby buggy, the pinning blankets, and lots and lots of things with it. Now sit still a minute longer. She rinsed and dried the back of his neck and dusted it with talcum powder. You're sweet as a clean little baby, Billy boy. The unexpected and lingering impact of her lips on the back of his neck made him writhe with mingled feelings not all unpleasant. Two days later, though vowing in the intervening time to have nothing further to do with the instrument of the devil, he permitted Saxon to assist him to a second shave. This time it went easier. It ain't so bad, he admitted. I'm getting the hang of it. It's all in the regulating. You can shave as close as you want, and no more close than you want. Barbers can't do that. Every once in a while they get my face sore. The third shave was an unqualified success, and the culminating bliss was reached when Saxon presented him with a bottle of witch hazel. After that he began actively proselytizing. He could not wait for a visit from Bert, but carried the paraphernalia to the latter's house to demonstrate. We've been boobs all these years, Bert, running the chances of Barber's itch and everything. Look at this, huh? See her take hold, smooth as silk, just as easy. There, six minutes by the clock. Can you beat it? 
When I get my hand in, I can do it in three. It works in the dark. It works under water. You couldn't cut yourself if you tried. And it saves twenty-six dollars a year. Saxon figured it out. And she's a wonder, I tell you. End of section twenty. Section twenty one of Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book two, chapter six. The trafficking between Saxon and Mercedes increased. The latter commanded a ready market for all the fine work Saxon could supply, while Saxon was eager and happy in the work. The expected babe and the cut in Billy's wages had caused her to regard the economic phase of existence more seriously than ever. Too little money was being laid away in the bank, and her conscience pricked her as she considered how much she was laying out on the pretty necessities for the household and herself. Also, for the first time in her life, she was spending another's earnings. Since a young girl, she had been used to spending her own, and now, thanks to Mercedes, she was doing it again, and, out of her profits, assaying more expensive and delightful adventures in lingerie. Mercedes suggested, and Saxon carried out, and even bettered, the dainty things of thread and texture. She made ruffled chemises of sheer linen, with her own fine edgings and French embroidery on breast and shoulders, linen handmade combination undersuits and nightgowns, fairy and cobwebby, embroidered, trimmed with Irish lace. On Mercedes' instigation, she executed an ambitious and wonderful breakfast cap, for which the old woman returned her twelve dollars after deducting commission. She was happy and busy every waking moment, nor was preparation for the little one neglected. The only ready-made garments she bought were three fine little knit shirts, as for the rest, every bit was made by her own hands, feather-stitched, pinning blankets, a crocheted jacket and cap, knitted mittens, embroidered bonnets, slim little princess slips of sensible length, underskirts on absurd Lilliputian yokes, silk-embroidered, white flannel petticoats, stocking and crocheted boots, seemingly burgeon before her eyes with wriggly pink toes and plump little calves, and last but not least many deliciously soft squares of bird's-eye linen. A little later, as a crowning masterpiece, she was guilty of a dress coat of white silk embroidered, and in all the tiny garments, with every stitch, she sewed love. Yet this love so unceasingly sewn, she knew, when she came to consider and marvel, was more of Billy than of the nebulous, ungraspable new bit of life that eluded her fondest attempts at visioning. Huh, was Billy's comment, as he went over the mite's wardrobe and came back to center on the little knit shirts. They look more like a real kid than the whole kitten caboodle. Why, I can see him in them regular man's shirts. Saxon, with a sudden rush of happy, unshed tears, held one of the little shirts up to his lips. He kissed it solemnly, 
his eyes resting on Saxon's. That's some for the boy, he said, but a whole lot for you. But Saxon's money-earning was doomed to cease ignominiously and tragically. One day, to take advantage of a department store bargain sale, she crossed the bay to San Francisco. Passing along Sutter Street, her eye was attracted by a display in the small window of a small shop. At first she could not believe it, yet there, in the honored place of the window, was the wonderful breakfast cap for which she had received twelve dollars from Mercedes. It was marked twenty-eight dollars. Saxon went in and interviewed the shopkeeper, an emaciated, shrewd-eyed, and middle-aged woman of foreign extraction. Oh, I don't want to buy anything, Saxon said. I make nice things like you have here, and I wanted to know what you pay for them. For that breakfast cap in the window, for instance. The woman darted a keen glance at Saxon's left hand, noted the innumerable tiny punctures in the ends of the first and second fingers, then appraised her clothing and her face. Can you do work like that? Saxon nodded. I paid twenty dollars to the woman that made that. Saxon repressed an almost spasmodic gasp and thought coolly for a space. Mercedes had given her twelve, then Mercedes had pocketed eight, while she, Saxon, had furnished the material and labor. Would you please show me other handmade things, nightgowns, chemises, and such things, and tell me the prices you pay? Can you do such work? Yes. And will you sell to me? Certainly, Saxon answered. That is why I'm here. We add only a small amount when we sell, the woman went on. You see light and rent and such things, as well as a profit, or else we could not be here. It is only fair, Saxon agreed. Amongst the beautiful stuff Saxon went over, she found a nightgown and a combination undersuit of her own manufacture. For the former, she had received eight dollars from Mercedes. It was marked eighteen, and the woman had paid fourteen. For the latter, Saxon received six. It was marked fifteen, and the woman had paid eleven. Thank you, Saxon said, as she drew on her gloves. I should like to bring you some of my work at those prices. And I shall be glad to buy it, if it is up to mark. The woman looked at her severely. Mind you, it must be as good as this, and if it is, I often get special orders, and I'll give you a chance at them. Mercedes was unblushingly candid when Saxon reproached her. You told me you took only a commission, was Saxon's accusation. So I did, and so I have. But I did all the work, and bought all the materials. Yet you actually cleared more out of it than I did. You got the lion's share. And why shouldn't I, my dear? I was the middleman. It's the way of the world. Tis the middleman that gets the lion's share. It seems to me most unfair, Saxon reflected, more in sadness than anger. That is your quarrel with the world, not with me, Mercedes rejoined sharply, then immediately softened with one of her quick changes. We mustn't quarrel, my dear. I like you so much, Lala. It is nothing to you who are young and strong, with a man young and strong. Listen, I am an old woman. 
and old Barry can do little for me. He is on his last legs. His kidneys are most gone. Remember, tis I must bury him. And I do him honor, for beside me he'll have his last long sleep. A stupid, dull old man, heavy an ox, tis true, but a good old fool with no trace of evil in him. The plot is bought and paid for. The final installment was made up in part out of my commission from you. Then there are the funeral expenses. It must be done nicely. I have still much to save, and Barry may turn up his toes any day. Saxon sniffed the air carefully and knew the old woman had been drinking again. Come, my dear, let me show you. Leading Saxon to a large sea chest in the bedroom, Mercedes lifted the lid. A faint perfume, as of rose petals, floated up. Behold my burial trousseau. Thus I shall wed the dust. Saxon's amazement increased as, article by article, the old woman displayed the airiest, the daintiest, the most delicious and most complete bridal outfits. Mercedes held up an ivory fan. In Venice was given me, my dear. See this comb, turtle shell. Bruce Anstey made it for me the week before he drank his last bottle and scattered his brave mad brains with a Colt's forty-four. This scarf, la la, a liberty scarf. And all that will be buried with you, Saxon mused. Oh, the extravagance of it. Mercedes laughed. Why not? I shall die as I have lived. It is my pleasure. I go to the dust as a bride. No cold and narrow bed for me. I would it were a couch, covered with the soft things of the East, and pillows, pillows without end. It would buy you twenty funerals and twenty plots, Saxon protested, shocked by this blasphemy of conventional death. It is downright wicked. "'Twas be as I have lived,' Mercedes said complacently. "'And it's a fine bride, old Barry. Have to come and lie beside him.' She closed the lid and sighed. "'Though I wish it were Bruce Anstey, or any of the pick of my young men to lie with me in the great dark and to crumble with me to the dust that is the real death. She gazed at Saxon with eyes heated by alcohol and at the same time cool with the coolness of content. In the old days the great of the earth were buried with their live slaves with them, but I take my flimsies, my dear. Then you aren't afraid of death in the least? Mercedes shook her head emphatically. Death is brave and good and kind. I do not fear death. Tis of men I am afraid when I am dead. So I prepare. They shall not have me when I am dead. Saxon was puzzled. They would not want you then, she said. Many are wanted, was the answer. Do you know what becomes of the aged poor who have no money for burial? They are not buried. Let me tell you. We stood before great doors. He was a queer man, a professor who ought to have been a pirate, a man who lectured in classrooms when he ought to have been storming walled cities or robbing banks. He was slender like Don Juan. His hands were strong as steel. So was his spirit. And he was mad, a bit mad, as all my young men have been. Come, Mercedes, he said. 
we will inspect our brethren and become humble, and glad that we are not as they. As yet, not yet. And afterwards, tonight, we will dine with a more devilish taste, and we will drink to them in golden wine that will be the more golden for having seen them. Come, Mercedes. He thrust the great doors open, and by the hand led me in. It was a sad company, twenty-four that lay on marble slabs, or sat, half erect and propped, with many young men, bright of eye, bright little knives in their hands, glanced curious at me from their work. They were dead, Saxon interrupted to gasp. They were the pauper dead, my dear. Come, Mercedes, said he, there is more to show you that will make us glad we are alive. And he took me down, down to the vats, the salt vats, my dear. I was not afraid, but it was in my mind then as I looked how it would be with me when I was dead. And there they were, so many lumps of pork. And the order came, a woman, an old woman. And the man who worked there fished at the vats. The first was a man he drew to see. Again he fished and stirred. Again a man. He was impatient and grumbled at his luck. And then, up through the brine, he drew a woman. And by the face of her she was old, and he was satisfied. It is not true, Saxon cried out. I have seen, my dear, I know. And I tell you, fear not the wrath of God when you are dead. Fear only the salt vats. And as I stood and looked, and as he who led me there looked at me, and smiled and questioned and bedeviled me with those mad, black, tired scholar eyes of his, I knew that that was no way for my dear clay. Dear it is, my clay to me, dear it has been to others. La, la, the salt vat is no place for my kissed lips and love-lavished body. Mercedes lifted the lid of the chest and gazed fondly at her burial pretties. So I've made my bed, so I shall lie in it. Some old philosopher said, We know we must die, we do not believe it. But the old do believe, I believe. My dear, remember the salt vats, and do not be angry with me, because my commission has been heavy. To escape the vats, I would stop at nothing. Steal the widow's mite, the orphan's crust, and pennies from a dead man's eyes. Do you believe in God? Saxon asked abruptly, holding herself together despite cold horror. Mercedes dropped the lid and shrugged her shoulders. Who knows? I shall rest well. And punishment? Saxon probed, remembering the unthinkable tale of the other's life. Impossible, my dear. As some old poet said, God's a good fellow. Sometime I shall talk to you about God. Never be afraid of him. Be afraid only of the salt vats and the things men may do with your pretty flesh after you are dead. End of section 21section twenty two of the valley of the moon by jack london this librivox recording is in the public domain book two chapter seven billy quarrelled with good fortune he suspected he was too prosperous on the wages he received 
What with the accumulating savings account, the paying of the monthly furniture installment and the house rent, the spending money in pocket, and the good fare he was eating, he was puzzled as to how Saxon managed to pay for the goods used in her fancy work. Several times he had suggested his inability to see how she did it, and been baffled each time by Saxon's mysterious laugh. "'I can't see how you do it on the money,' he was contending one evening. He opened his mouth to speak further, then closed it, and for five minutes thought with knitted brows. "'Say,' he said, "'what's become of that frilly breakfast cap you was working on so hard? I ain't never seen you wear it, and it was sure too big for the kid.' Saxon hesitated, with pursed lips and teasing eye. With her untruthfulness, had always been a difficult matter. To Billy, it was impossible. She could see the cloud drift in his eyes deepening and his face hardening in the way she knew so well when he was vexed. Say, Saxon, you ain't, you ain't selling your work. And thereat she related everything, not omitting Mercedes Higgins' part in the transaction, nor Mercedes Higgins' remarkable burial trousseau but Billy was not to be led astray by the latter. In terms anything but uncertain, he told Saxon that she was not to work for money. But I have so much spare time, Billy dear, she pleaded. He shook his head. Nothing doing. I won't listen to it. I married you, and I'll take care of you. Nobody can say Billy Roberts' wife has to work, and I don't want to think it myself. Besides, it ain't necessary. But Billy, she began. Nope. That's one thing I won't stand for, Saxon. Not that I don't like fancy work. I do. I like it like hell. Every bit you make. But I like it on you. Go ahead and make all you want of it for yourself. And I'll put up for the goods. Why, I'm just whistling and happy all day long, thinking of the boy and seeing you at home here working away on all them nice things because I know how happy you are doing it. But honest to God, Saxon, it'd all be spoiled if I knew you was doing it to sell. You see, Billy Roberts' wife don't have to work. That's my brag to myself, mind you. And besides, it ain't right. You're a dear, she whispered, happy despite her disappointment. I want you to have all you want, he continued, and you're going to get it as long as I got two hands sticking on the ends of my arms. I guess I know how good the things are you wear. Good to me, I mean, too. I'm dry behind the ears, and maybe I've learned a few things I oughtn't to before I knew you. But I know what I'm talking about, and I want to say that outside the clothes down underneath and the clothes down underneath the outside ones, I never saw a woman like you. Oh. He threw up his hands as if despairing of ability to express what he thought and felt, then essayed a further attempt. It's not a matter of being only clean, though that's a whole lot. Lots of women are clean. It ain't that. It's something more and different. It's, well, it's the look of it, so white and pretty and tasty. It gets on the imagination. It's something I can't get out of my thoughts of you. 
I want to tell you lots of men can't strip to advantage, and a lots of women, too. But you, well, you're a wonder, that's all, and you can't get too many of them nice things to suit me, and you can't get them too nice. For that matter, Saxon, you could just blow yourself. There's lots of easy money laying around. I'm in great condition. Billy Murphy pulled down seventy-five round iron dollars only last week for putting away the pride of North Beach. That's what he paid us the fifty back out of. But this time it was Saxon who rebelled. There's Carl Hansen, Billy argued, the second Sharky. The alfalfa sportin' riders are calling him, and he calls himself champion of the United States Navy. Well, I got his number. He's just a big stiff. I've seen him fight, and I can pass him the sleep medicine just as easy. The secretary of the Sporting Life Club offered to match me, and a hundred dollars in it for the winner. And it'll be all yours to blow in any way you want. What do you say? If I can't work for money, you can't fight, was Saxon's ultimatum, immediately withdrawn. But you and I don't drive bargains. Even if you'd let me work for money, I wouldn't let you fight. I've never forgotten what you told me about how prize fighters lose their silk. Well, you're not going to lose yours. It's half my silk, you know. And if you won't fight, I won't work. There. And more. I'll never do anything you don't want me to, Billy. Same here, Billy agreed. Though just the same, I'd like most to death to have just one go at that square-head Hanson. He smiled with pleasure at the thought. So let's forget it all now, and you sing me Harvest Days on that dinky, what you may call it. When she had complied, accompanying herself on the ukulele, she suggested his weird cowboy's lament. In some explicable way of love, she had come to like her husband's one song. Because he sang it, she liked its inanity and monotonousness, and most of all, it seemed to her, she loved his hopeless and adorable flattening of every note. She could even sing with him, flattening as accurately and deliciously as he. Nor did she undeceive him in his sublime faith. I guess Bert and the rest have joshed me all the time, he said. You and I get along together with it fine, she equivocated, for in such matters she did not deem the untruth a wrong. Spring was on when the strike came into the railroad shops. The Sunday before it was called, Saxon and Billy had dinner at Bert's house. Saxon's brother came, though he found it impossible to bring Sarah, who refused to budge from her household rut. Bert was blackly pessimistic, and they found him singing with sardonic glee. Nobody loves a millionaire. Nobody likes his looks. Nobody will share his slightest care. He classes with thugs and crooks. Thriftiness has become a crime. So spend everything you earn. We're living now in a funny time when money is made to burn. Mary went about the dinner preparation, flaunting unmistakable signs of rebellion, and Saxon, rolling up her sleeves and tying on an apron, washed the breakfast dishes. Bert fetched a pitcher of steaming beer from the corner saloon, and the three men smoked and talked about the coming strike. 
It ought to come years ago, was Bert's dictum. It can't come any too quick now to suit me, but it's too late. We're beaten thumbs down. Here's where the last of them Higgins get theirs. In the neck, kerwop. Oh, I don't know, Tom, who had been smoking his pipe gravely, began the council. Organized labor's getting stronger every day. Why, I can remember when there wasn't any unions in California. Look at us now. Wages and hours and everything. You talk like an organizer, Bert sneered, shoving the bull con on the boneheads. But we know different. Organized wages won't buy as much now as unorganized wages used to buy. They got us whipsawed. Look at Frisco. The labor leaders doing the dirtier politics than the old parties, pawing and squabbling over graft and going to San Quentin. Why? What are the Frisco carpenters doing? Let me tell you one thing, Tom Brown. If you listen to all you hear, you'll hear that every Frisco carpenter is union and getting full union wages. Do you believe it? It's a damn lie. There ain't a carpenter that don't rebate his wages Saturday night to the contractor. And that's your building trades in San Francisco. While the leaders are making trips to Europe, on the earnings of the tenderloin, when they ain't coughed it up to lawyers to get out of wearing stripes. That's all right, Tom concurred. Nobody's denying it. The trouble is labor ain't quite got his eyes open. It ought to play politics, but the politics ought to be the right kind. Socialism, huh? Bert caught him up with scorn. Wouldn't they sell us out just as the Roofs and Schmitz have? Get the men that are honest, Billy said. That's the whole trouble. Not that I stand for socialism. I don't. All our folks was a long time in America. And I am, for one, won't stand for a lot of fat Germans and greasy Russian Jews telling me how to run my country when they can't speak English yet. Your country, Bert cried. Why, you bonehead, you ain't got a country. That's a fairy story the grafters shove at you every time they want to rob you some more. But don't vote for the grafters, Billy contended. If we select honest men, we get honest treatment. I wish you'd come to some of our meetings, Billy, Tom said wistfully. If you would, you'd get your eyes open and vote the socialist ticket next election. Not on your life, Billy declined. When you catch me in a socialist meeting will be when they can talk like white men. Bert was humming. We're living now in a funny time when money is made to burn. Mary was too angry with her husband because of the impending strike and his incendiary utterances to hold conversation with Saxon and the latter be puzzled listen to the conflicting opinions of the men. Where are we at? she asked them, with a merriness that concealed her anxiety at heart. We ain't at, Bert snarled. We're gone. But meat and oil have gone up, she chafed, and Billy's wages have been cut, and the shopmen's were cut last year. Something must be done. The only thing to do is fight like hell, Bert answered. Fight and go down fighting, that's all. We're licked anyhow, but we can have a last run for our money. That's no way to talk, Tom rebuked. The time for talking's past, old cock. The time for fighting has come. 
hell of a chance you'd have against regular troops and machine guns, Billy retorted. Oh, not that way. There's such things as greasy sticks that go up with a loud noise and leave holes. Then there's such things as emery powder. Oh, ho, Mary burst out upon him. Arms akimbo. So that's what it means. That's what the emery in your vest pocket meant. Her husband ignored her. Tom smoked with a troubled air. Billy was hurt. It showed plainly in his face. He ain't been doing that, Bert, he asked, his manner showing his expectancy of his friend's denial. Sure thing, if you want to know. I'd see him in hell, if I could, before I go. He's a bloody-minded anarchist, Mary complained. Men like him killed McKinley and Garfield and, and all the rest. He'll be hung, you'll see. Mark my words. I'm glad there's no children in sight, that's all. It's hot air, Billy comforted her. He's just teasing you, Saxon soothed. He always was a josher. But Mary shook her head. I know. I hear him talking in his sleep. He swears and curses something awful and grits his teeth. Listen to him now. Bert, his handsome face bitter, and devil may care, had tilted his chair back against the wall and was singing, Nobody loves a millionaire. Nobody likes his looks. Nobody'll share his slightest care. He classes with thugs and crooks. Tom was saying something about reasonableness and justice, and Bert ceased from singing to catch him up. Justice, huh? Another pipe dream. I'll show you where the working class gets justice. You remember Forbes, J. Alliston Forbes, who wrecked the Alta California Trust Company and salted down two cold millions? I saw him yesterday in a big hell-bent automobile. What'd he get? Eight years' sentence. How long did he serve? Less than two years. Pardoned out on account of ill health. Ill hell. We'll be dead and rotted before he kicks the bucket. Here, look out this window. You see the back of that house with the broken porch rail? Mrs. Daniker lives there. She takes in washing. Her old man was killed on the railroad. Nitsky on damages, contributory negligence, or fellow-servant something or other flim-flam. That's what the court handed her. Her boy Archie was sixteen. He was on the road, a regular road kid. He blew into Fresno and rolled a drunk. Do you want to know how much he got? Two dollars and eighty cents. Get that. Two eighty. And what did the alfalfa judge hand him? Fifty years. He served eight of it already in San Quentin. And he'll go on serving it till he croaks. Mrs. Daniker says he's bad with consumption. Caught it inside. But she ain't got the pull to get him pardoned. Archie the kid steals two dollars and eighty cents from a drunk and gets fifty years. J. Alliston Forbes sticks up the Alta Trust for two millions and gets less than two years. Whose country is this anyway? You're an Archie the kids? Guess again. It's J. Alliston Forbes. Oh, nobody likes a millionaire. Nobody likes his look. Nobody'll share his slightest care. He classes with thugs and crooks. Mary at the sink when Saxon was just finishing the last dish, untied Saxon's apron and kissed her with a sympathy 
that women alone feel for each other under the shadow of maternity. Now you sit down, dear. You mustn't tire yourself, and it's a long way to go yet. I'll get your sewing for you. You can listen to the men talk. But don't listen to Bert. He's crazy. Saxon sewed and listened, and Bert's face grew bleak and bitter as he contemplated the baby clothes in her lap. There you go, he blurted out, bringing kids into the world when you ain't got any guarantee you can feed em. You must have had a seuss last night, Tom grinned. Bert shook his head. Oh, what's the use of getting grouched, Billy cheered. It's a pretty good country. It was a pretty good country, Bert replied. When we was all Mohegans, but not now, we're jiggerooed, we're hornswoggled, we're back to a standstill. We're double-crossed to a fair UL. My folks fought for this country, so did yourn, all of you. We freed the niggers, killed the Indians, and starved and froze and sweat and fought. The land looked good to us. We cleared it and broke it and made the roads and built the cities, and there was plenty for everybody, and we went on fighting for it. I had two uncles killed at Gettysburg. All of us was mixed up in that war. Listen to Saxon talk any time. What her folks went through to get out here and get ranches and horses and cattle and everything. And they got em. All our folks got em. Mary's too. And if they'd been smart, they'd have held on to them, she interpolated. Sure thing, Burke continued. That's the very point. We're losers. We've been robbed. We couldn't mark cards, deal from the bottom and ring in cold decks like the others, where the white folks had failed. You see, times changed, and there was two kinds of us, the lions and the plugs. The plugs only worked, the lions only gobbled. They gobbled the farms, the mines, the factories, and now they've gobbled the government, where the white folks and the children of white folks that was too busy being good to be smart, where the white folks that lost out, we're the ones that been skinned, do you get me? You'd make a good soapboxer, Tom commended. If only you'd get the kink straightened out in your reasoning. It sounds all right, Bert, Billy said. Only it ain't. Any man can get rich today. Or be President of the United States, Bert snapped. Sure thing, if he's got it in him. Just the same, I ain't heard you making a noise like a millionaire or a president. Why? You ain't got it in you. You're a bonehead, a plug. That's why. Skidoo for you. Skidoo for all of us. At the table while they ate, Tom talked of the joys of farm life he had known as a boy and as a young man, and confided that it was his dream to go and take up government land somewhere as his people had done before him. Unfortunately, as he explained, Sarah was set so that the dream must remain a dream. It's all in the game, Billy sighed. It's played to rules. Someone has got to get knocked out, I suppose. A little later, while Bert was off on a fresh diatribe, Billy became aware that he was making comparisons. This house was not like his house. Here was no satisfying atmosphere. Things seemed to run with a jar. He recollected that when they arrived, the breakfast dishes had not yet been washed. 
with a man's general obliviousness of household affairs, he had not noted details, yet it had been borne in on him all morning, in a myriad of ways, that Mary was not the housekeeper Saxon was. He glanced proudly across at her, and felt the spur of an impulse to leave his seat, go round and embrace her. She was a wife. He remembered her dainty undergarmenting, and on the instant into his brain leaped the image of her so apparelled, only to be shattered by Bert. Hey, Bill, you seem to think I've got a grouch. Sure thing I have. You ain't had my experiences. You've always done teamin' and pulled down easy money prize fightin'. You ain't known hard times. You ain't been through strikes. You ain't had to take care of an old mother and swallow dirt on her account. It wasn't until after she died that I could rip loose and take or leave as I felt like it. Take that time I tackled the Niles Electric and see what a work plug gets handed out to him. The head cheese sizes me up, pumps me a lot of questions, and gives me an application blank. I make it out. Paying a dollar to a doctor, they sent me to for a health certificate. Then I got to go to a picture garage and get my mug taken for the Niles Electric Rogues Gallery, and I cough up another dollar for the mug. The head squirt takes the blank, the health certificate, and the mug, and fires more questions. Did I belong to a labor union, me? Of course I told him the truth. I guess knit. I needed the job. The grocery wouldn't give me any more tick. And there was my mother. Huh, thinks I. Here's where I am a real carman. Back platform for me, where I can pick up the fancy skirts. Nitsky. Two dollars, please. Me. My two dollars. All for a pewter badge. Then there was a uniform. Nineteen fifty, and get it anywhere else for fifteen. Only that was to be paid out of my first month, and then five dollars in change in my pocket, my own money. That was the rule. I borrowed that five from Tom Donovan, the policeman. Then what? They worked me for two weeks without pay, breaking me in. Did you pick up any fancy skirts? Saxon queried teasingly. Bert shook his head glumly. I only worked a month. Then we organized and they busted our union hiring a kite. And you boobs in the shop will be busted the same way if you go out on strike, Mary informed him. That's what I've been telling you all along, Bert replied. We ain't got a chance to win. Then why go out was Saxon's question. He looked at her with lackluster eyes for a moment, then answered, Why did my two uncles get killed at Gettysburg? End of section 22、section、of the Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Eight. Saxon went about her housework, greatly troubled. She no longer devoted herself to the making of pretties. The material cost too much money, and she did not dare. Bert's thrust had sunk home. It remained in her quivering consciousness like a shaft of steel 
that ever turned and rankled. She and Billy were responsible for this coming young life. Could they be sure, after all, that they could adequately feed and clothe it and prepare it for its way in the world? Where was the guarantee? She remembered dimly the blight of hard times in the past, and the plaints of fathers and mothers in those days returned to her with new significance. Almost could she understand Sarah's chronic complaining. Hard times were already in the neighborhood. Where lived the families of the shopmen who had gone out on strike? Among the small storekeepers, Saxon, in the course of the daily marketing, could sense the air of despondency. Light and geniality seemed to have vanished. Gloom pervaded everywhere. The mothers of the children that played in the streets showed the gloom plainly in their faces. When they gossiped in the evening, over front gates and on door stoops, their voices were subdued, and less of laughter rang out. Mary Donahue, who had taken three pints from the milkmen, now took one pint. There were no more family trips to the moving picture shows. Scrap meat was harder to get from the butcher. Nora Delaney, in the third house, no longer bought fresh fish for Friday. Salted codfish, not of the best quality, was now on her table. The sturdy children that ran out upon the street between meals with huge slices of bread and butter and sugar now came out with no sugar and with thinner slices spread more thinly with butter. The very custom was dying out, and some children already had desisted from piecing between meals. Everywhere was manifest a pinching and scraping, a tightening and shortening down of expenditure, and everywhere was more irritation. Women became angered with one another and with the children, more quickly than of yore. Saxon knew that Bert and Mary bickered incessantly. If she'd only realized I've got trouble of my own, Bert complained to Saxon. She looked at him closely and felt fear for him in a vague, numb way. His black eyes seemed to burn with continuous madness. The brown face was leaner, the skin drawn tightly across the cheekbones. A slight twist had come to the mouth, which seemed frozen into bitterness. The very carriage of his body and the way he wore his hat advertised a recklessness more intense than had been his in the past. Sometimes in the long afternoons, sitting by the window with idle hands, she caught herself reconstructing in her vision that folk migration of her people across the plains and mountains and deserts to the sunset land by the western sea. And often she found herself dreaming of the Arcadian days of her people, when they had not lived in cities nor been vexed with labor unions and employers' associations. She would remember the old people's tales of self-sufficientness when they shot or raised their own meat, grew their own vegetables, were their own blacksmiths and carpenters, made their own shoes, yes, and spun the cloth of the clothes they wore. And something of the wistfulness in Tom's face she could see, as she recollected it, when he talked of his dream of taking up government land. A farmer's life must be fine, she thought. Why was it that people had to live in cities? Why had times changed? 
If there had been enough in the old days, why was there not enough now? Why was it necessary for men to quarrel and jangle and strike and fight all about the matter of getting work? Why wasn't there work for all? Only that morning she had shuddered with the recollection she had seen two scabs on their way to work, beaten up by the strikers, by men she knew by sight, and some by name, who lived in the neighborhood. It had happened directly across the street. It had been cruel, terrible, a dozen men on two. The children had begun it by throwing rocks at the scabs and cursing them in ways children should not know. Policemen had run upon the scene with drawn revolvers, and the strikers had retreated into the houses and through the narrow alleys between the houses. One of the scabs, unconscious, had been carried away in an ambulance. The other, assisted by special railroad police, had been taken away to the shops. At him, Mary Donahue, standing on her front stoop, her child in her arms, had hurled such vile abuse that it had brought the blush of shame to Saxon's cheeks. On the stoop of the house on the other side, Saxon had noted Mercedes, in the height of the beating-up, looking on with a queer smile. She had seemed very eager to witness, her nostrils dilated and swelling like the beat of pulses as she watched. It had struck Saxon at the time that the old woman was quite unalarmed and only curious to see. To Mercedes, who was so wise in love, Saxon went for an explanation of what was the matter with the world. But the old woman's wisdom in affairs industrial and economic was cryptic and unpalatable. La, la, my dear, it is so simple. Most men are born stupid. They are the slaves. A few are born clever. They are the masters. God made men so, I suppose. Then how about God in that terrible beating across the street this morning? I'm afraid he was not interested, Mercedes smiled. I doubt he even knows that it happened. I was frightened to death, Saxon declared. I was made sick by it. And yet you, I saw you, you looked on as cool as you please, as if it were a show. It was a show, my dear. Oh, how could you? La, la. I have seen men killed. It is nothing strange. All men die. The stupid ones die like oxen. They know not why. It is quite funny to see. They strike each other with fists and clubs, and break each other's heads. It is gross. They are like a lot of animals. They are like dogs wrangling over bones. Jobs are bones, you know. Now if they fought for women, or ideas, or bars of gold, or fabulous diamonds, it would be splendid. But no, they're only hungry, and fight over scraps for their stomach. Oh, if I could only understand, Saxon murmured, her hands tightly clasped in anguish of incomprehension and vital need to know. There's nothing to understand. It is clear as print. There have always been the stupid and the clever, the slaves and the master, the peasant and the prince. There always will be. But why? Why is a peasant a peasant, my dear? Because he is a peasant. Why is a flea a flea? Saxon tossed her head fretfully. 
Oh, but my dear, I have answered. The philosophies of the world can give no better answer. Why do you like your man for a husband rather than any other man? Because you like him that way, that is all. Why do you like? Because you like. Why does fire burn and frost bite? Why are there clever men and stupid men, masters and slaves, employers and working men? Why is black black? Answer that, and you answer everything. But it is not right that men should go hungry and without work when they want to work, if only they can get a square deal, Saxon protested. Oh, but it is right, just as it is right, that stone won't burn like wood, that sea sand isn't sugar, that thorns prick, that water is wet, that smoke rises, that things fall down and not up. But such doctrine of reality made no impression on Saxon. Frankly, she could not comprehend. It seemed like so much nonsense. They have no liberty and independence, she cried passionately. One man is not as good as another. My child has not the right to live that a rich mother's child has. Certainly not, Mercedes answered. Yet all my people fought for these things, Saxon urged, remembering her school history and the sword of her father. Democracy, the dream of the stupid peoples. Oh, la, la, my dear, democracy is a lie, an enchantment to keep the work brutes content, just as religion used to keep them content. When they groaned in their misery and toil, they were persuaded to keep on in their misery and toil by pretty tales of land beyond the skies, where they would live famously and fat while the clever ones roasted in everlasting fire. Ah, how the clever ones must have chuckled! And when that lie wore out, and democracy was dreamed, the clever ones saw to it that it should be in truth a dream, nothing but a dream. The world belongs to the great and clever. But you are the working people, Saxon charged. The old woman drew herself up and almost was angry. I of the working people? My dear, because I had the misfortune with money invested, because I am old, and can no longer win the brave young men, because I have outlived the men of my youth, and there is no one to go to, because I live here in the ghetto with Barry Higgins and prepare to die, why, my dear, I was born with the masters, and have trod all my days on the necks of the stupid. I have drunk rare wines, and sat at feasts that would have supported this neighborhood for a lifetime. Dick Golden and I, it was Dickie's money, but I could have had it. Dick Golden and I dropped 400,000 francs in a week's play at Monte Carlo. He was a Jew, but he was a spender. In India, I have worn jewels that could have saved the lives of 10,000 families dying before my eyes. You saw them die and did nothing? Saxon asked, aghast. I kept my jewels, la la, and was robbed of them by a brute of a Russian officer within the year. And you let them die, Saxon reiterated. They were cheap spawn. They fester and multiply like maggots. They meant nothing, nothing, my dear, nothing. No more than your work people mean here, whose crowning stupidity is their continuing to beget 
more stupid spawn for the slavery of the masters. So it was that while Saxon could get little glimmering of common sense from others, from the terrible old woman she got none at all. Nor could Saxon bring herself to believe much of what she considered Mercedes romancing. As the weeks passed, the strike in the railroad shops grew bitter and deadly. Billy shook his head and confessed his inability to make head or tails of the trouble that were looming on the labor horizon. I don't get the hang of it, he told Saxon. It's a mix-up. It's like a roughhouse with the lights out. Look at us teamsters. Here we are. The talk just starting of going out on sympathetic strike for the mill workers. They've been out a week. Most of their places is filled. And if us teamsters keep on hauling the mill work, the strike's lost. Yet you didn't consider striking for yourselves when your wages were cut, Saxon said with a frown. Oh, we wasn't in position then. But now the Frisco Teamsters and the whole Frisco Waterfront Confederation is liable to back us up. Anyway, we're just talking about it, that's all. But if we do go out, we'll try to get back that ten percent cut. It's rotten politics, he said another time. Everybody's rotten. If we'd only wise up and agree to pick out honest men. But if you and Bert and Tom can't agree, how do you expect all the rest to agree? Saxon asked. It gets me, he admitted. It's enough to give a guy the willies thinking about it. And yet it's plain as the nose on your face. Get honest men for politics, and the whole thing's straightened out. Honest men make honest laws, and them honest men get their dues. But Bert wants to smash things, and Tom smokes his pipe and dreams pipe dreams about by and by when everybody votes the way he thinks. But this by and by ain't the point. We want things now. Tom says we can't get them now, and Bert says we ain't never going to get them. What can a fellow do when everybody's of different minds? Look at the socialists themselves. They're always disagreeing and splitting up and firing each other out of the party. The whole thing's a bug house, that's what, and I almost get dippy myself thinking about it. The point I can't get out of my mind is that we want things now. He broke off abruptly and stared at Saxon. What is it, he asked, his voice husky with anxiety. You ain't sick or, or anything? She had pressed her hand to her heart but the startle and fright in her eyes was changing into a pleased intentness, while on her mouth was a little mysterious smile. She seemed oblivious to her husband, as if listening to some message from afar and not for his ears. Then wonder and joy transfused her face, and she looked at Billy, and her hand went out to his. "'It's life,' she whispered. "'I felt life.' I'm so glad, so glad. The next evening when Billy came home from work, Saxton caused him to know and undertake more of the responsibilities of fatherhood. I've been thinking it over, Billy, she began, and I'm such a healthy, strong woman that it won't have to be very expensive. There's Martha Skelton. She's a good midwife. Billy shook his head. Nothing doing in that line, Saxon. 
you're going to have Doc Hentley. He's Bill Murphy's Doc, and Bill swears by him. He's an old cuss, but he's a waz. She can find Maggie Donahue, Saxon argued, and look at her and her baby. Well, she won't confine you. Not so as you can notice it. But the doctor will charge twenty dollars, Saxon pursued, and make me get a nurse, because I haven't any woman folk to come in. But Martha Skelton would do everything, and it would be so much cheaper. Billy gathered her tenderly in his arms and laid down the law. Listen to me, little wife. The Roberts family ain't on the cheap. Never forget that. You've got to have the baby. That's your business, and it's enough for you. My business is to get the money and take care of you, and the best ain't none too good for you. Why, I wouldn't run the chance of the teeniest accident happening to you for a million dollars. It's you that counts, and dollars is dirt. Maybe you think I like that kid some. I do. Why, I can't get him out of my head. I'm thinking about him all day long. If I get fired, it'll be his fault. I'm clean doty over him. But just the same, Saxon, honest to God, before I'd have anything happen to you, break your little finger, even if I'd seen him dead and buried first. That'd give you something of an idea of what you mean to me. Why, Saxon, I had the idea that when folks got married, they just settled down, and after a while, their business was to get along with each other. Maybe it is that way with other people, but it ain't that way with you and me. I love you more and more every day. Right now I love you more than when I began talking to you five minutes ago. And you won't have to get a nurse. Doc Hantley will come every day, and Mary will come in and do the housework and take care of you and all that, just as you'll do it for her if she ever needs it. As the days and weeks passed, Saxon was possessed by a conscious feeling of proud motherhood in her swelling breasts. So essentially a normal woman was she that motherhood was a satisfying and passionate happiness. It was true that she had her moments of apprehension, but they were so momentary and faint that they tended, if anything, to give zest to her happiness. Only one thing troubled her, and that was the puzzling and perilous situation of labor which no one seemed to understand, herself least of all. They're always talking about how much more is made by machinery than by the old ways, she told her brother Tom. Then, with all the machinery we've got now, why don't we get more? Now you're talking, he answered. It wouldn't take you that long to understand socialism. But Saxon had a mind to the immediate needs of things. Tom, how long have you been a socialist? Eight years. And you haven't got anything by it. But we will, in time. At that rate you'll be dead first, she challenged. Tom sighed. I'm afraid so. Things move so slow. Again he sighed. She noted the weary, patient look in his face, the bent shoulders, the labor-gnarled hands, and it all seemed to symbolize the futility of his social creed. End of chapter 23
Section 24 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 9. It began quietly, as the fateful unexpected so often begins. Children of all ages and sizes were playing in the street, and Saxon, by the open front window, was watching them and dreaming daydreams of her child soon to be. The sunshine mellowed peacefully down, and a light wind from the bay cooled the air and gave to it a tang of salt. One of the children pointed up Pine Street toward Seventh. All the children ceased playing and stared and pointed. They formed into groups, the larger boys, from ten to twelve, by themselves, the older girls anxiously clutching the small children by the hand or gathering them into their arms. Saxon could not see the cause of all this, but she could guess when she saw the larger boys rush to the gutter, pick up stones, and sneak into the alleys between the houses. Smaller boys tried to imitate them. The girls, dragging the tots by the arms, banged gates and clattered up the front steps of the small houses. The doors slammed behind them, and the street was deserted, though here and there front shades were drawn aside so that anxious-faced women might peer forth. Saxon heard the uptown train puffing and snorting as it pulled out from Center Street. Then from the direction of Seventh came a hoarse, throaty man-roar. Still she could see nothing, and she remembered Mercedes Higgins' words they are like dogs wrangling over bones. Jobs are bones, you know. The roar came closer, and Saxon, leaning out, saw a dozen scabs conveyed by as many special police and Pinkertons coming down the sidewalk on her side of the street. They came compactly, as if with discipline, while behind, disorderly, yelling confusedly, stooping to pick up rocks, were seventy-five or a hundred of the striking shopmen. Saxon discovered herself trembling with apprehension, knew that she must not, and controlled herself. She was helped in this by the conduct of Mercedes Higgins. The old woman came out of her front door, dragging a chair on which she coolly seated herself on the tiny stoop at the top of the steps. In the hands of the special police were clubs. The Pinkertons, carried no visible weapons. The strikers, urging on from behind, seemed content with yelling their rage and threats, and it remained for the children to precipitate the conflict. From across the street, between the Olson and Isham houses, came a shower of stones. Most of these fell short, though one struck a scab on the head. The man was no more than twenty feet away from Saxon. He reeled toward her front picket fence, drawn a revolver. With one hand he brushed the blood from his eyes, and with the other he discharged the revolver into the Isham house. A Pinkerton seized his arm to prevent a second shot and dragged him along. At the same instant a wilder roar went up from the strikers, while a volley of stones came from between Saxon's house and Maggie Donahue's. The scabs and their protectors made a stand, drawing revolvers. From their hard, determined faces, fighting men by profession, Saxon could augur nothing 
but bloodshed and death. An elderly man, evidently the leader, lifted a soft felt hat and mopped the perspiration from the bald top of his head. He was a large man, very rotund of belly and helpless-looking. His gray beard was stained with streaks of tobacco juice, and he was smoking a cigar. He was stoop-shouldered, and Saxon noted the dandruff on the collar of his coat. One of the men pointed into the street, and several of his companions laughed. The cause of it was the little Olsen boy, barely four years old, escaped somehow from his mother, and toddling toward his economic enemies. In his right he bore a rock so heavy that he could scarcely lift it. With this he feebly threatened them. His rosy little face was convulsed with rage, and he was screaming over and over, Damn scabs! Damn scabs! Damn scabs! The laughter with which they greeted him only increased his fury. He toddled closer and, with a mighty exertion, threw the rock. It fell a scant six feet beyond his hand. This much Saxon saw, and also Mrs. Olsen rushing into the street for her child. A rattling of revolver shots from the strikers drew Saxon's attention to the men beneath her. One of them cursed sharply and examined the biceps of his left arm, which hung limply by his side. Down the hand she saw the blood beginning to drip. She knew she ought not remain and watch, but the memory of her fighting forefathers was with her, while she possessed no more than normal human fear, if anything, less. She forgot her child in the eruption of battle that had broken upon her quiet street. She had forgot the strikers and everything else. In amazement at what had happened to the round-bellied, cigar-smoking leader. In some strange way, she knew not how, his head had become wedged at the neck between the tops of the pickets of her fence. His body hung down outside, his knees not quite touching the ground. His hat had fallen off, and the sun was making an astounding highlight of his bald spot. The cigar, too, was gone. She saw he was looking at her. One hand between the pickets seemed waving at her, and almost he seemed to wink at her jocosely, though she knew it to be the contortion of deadly pain. Possibly a second, or at most two seconds, she gazed at this when she was aroused by Bert's voice. He was running along the sidewalk in front of her house, and behind him charged several more strikers, while he shouted, Come on, you Mohegans, we've got him nailed to the cross. In his left hand he carried a pick handle, in his right a revolver, already empty, for he clicked the cylinder vainly around as he ran. With an abrupt stop, dropping the pick handle, he whirled half about, facing Saxon's gate. He was sinking down. When he straightened himself to throw the revolver into the face of a scab, who was jumping toward him. Then he began swaying, at the same time sagging at the knees and waist. Slowly, with infinite effort, he caught at a gate picket in his right hand, and still slowly, as if lowering himself, sank down, while past him leaped the crowd of strikers he had led. It was a battle without quarter, a massacre. The scabs and their protectors surrounded, 
backed against Saxon's fence, fought like cornered rats, but could not withstand the rush of a hundred men. Clubs and pick-handles were swinging, revolvers were exploding, and cobblestones were flung with crushing effect at arm's distance. Saxon saw young Frank Davis, a friend of Bert's, and a father of several months standing, pressed the muzzle of his revolver against the scab's stomach and fire. There were curses and snarls of rage, wild cries of terror and pain. Mercedes was right. These things were not men. They were beasts, fighting over bones, destroying one another for bones. Jobs are bones. Jobs are bones. The phrase was an incessant iteration in Saxon's brain. Much as she might have wished it, she was powerless now to withdraw from the window. It was as if she were paralyzed. Her brain no longer worked. She sat numb, staring, incapable of anything save seeing the rapid horror before her eyes that flashed along like a moving picture film gone mad. She saw Pinkerton's special police and strikers go down. One scab, terribly wounded, on his knees and begging for mercy, was kicked in the face. As he sprawled backward, another striker, standing over him, fired a revolver into his chest, quickly and deliberately, again and again, until the weapon was empty. Another scab, backed over the pickets by a hand, clutching his throat, had his face pulped by a revolver, but, again and again continually, the revolver rose and fell, and Saxon knew the man who wielded it, Chester Johnson. She had met him at dances and danced with him in the days before she was married. He had always been kind and good-natured. She remembered the Friday night after a City Hall band concert when he had taken her and two other girls to Tony's Tamale Grotto on 13th Street, and after that they had all gone to Pap's Café and drunk a glass of beer before they went home. It was impossible that this could be the same Chester Johnson. And as she looked, she saw the round-bellied leader, still wedged by the neck between the pickets, draw a revolver with his free hand, and, squinting horribly sideways, press the muzzle against Chester's side. She tried to scream a warning. She did scream, and Chester looked up and saw her. At that moment, the revolver went off and he collapsed prone upon the body of the scab, and the bodies of three men hung on her picket fence. Anything could happen now, quite without surprise. She saw the strikers leaping the fence, trampling her few little geraniums and pansies into the earth as they fled between Mercedes' house and hers. Up Pine Street from the railroad yards was coming a rush of railroad police and Pinkertons firing as they ran, while down Pine Street, gongs clanging, horses at gallop, came three patrol wagons packed with police. The strikers were in a trap. The only way out was between the houses and over the backyard fences. The jam in the narrow alley prevented them all from escaping. A dozen were cornered in the angle between the front of her house and the steps, and, as they had done, so they were done by. No effort was made to arrest. They were clubbed down and shot down to the last man by the guardians of the peace, who were infuriated 
by what had been wreaked on their brethren. It was all over, and Saxon, moving as in a dream, clutching the banister tightly, came down the front steps. The round-bellied leader still leered at her and fluttered one hand, though two big policemen were just bending to extricate him. The gate was off its hinges, which seemed strange, for she had been watching all the time and had not seen it happen. Bert's eyes were closed, his lips were blood-flecked, and there was a gurgling in his throat as if he were trying to say something. As she stooped above him, with her handkerchief brushing the blood from his cheek where someone had stepped on him, his eyes opened. The old defiant light was in them. He did not know her. The lips moved, and faintly, almost reminiscently, he murmured, The last of the Mohegans, the last of the Mohegans. Then he groaned, and the eyelids drooped down again. He was not dead, she knew that. The chest still rose and fell, and the gurgling still continued in his throat. She looked up. Mercedes stood beside her. The old woman's eyes were very bright. Her withered cheeks flushed. "'Will you help me carry him into the house?' Saxon asked. Mercedes nodded, turned to a sergeant of police, and made the request to him. The sergeant gave a swift glance at Bert, and his eyes were bitter and ferocious as he refused. "'The hell of him. We'll care for our own.' "'Maybe you and I can do it,' Saxon said. "'Don't be a fool.' Mercedes was beckoning to Mrs. Olson across the street. "'You go into the house, little mother that is to be. This is bad for you. We'll carry him in. Mrs. Olson is coming, and we'll get Maggie Donahue.' Saxon led the way into the back bedroom, which Billy had insisted on furnishing. As she opened the door, the carpet seemed to fly up into her face with the force of a blow, for she remembered Bert had laid that carpet, and as the woman placed him on the bed she recalled that it was Bert and she between them who had set the bed up one Sunday morning. And then she felt very queer and was surprised to see Mercedes regarding her with questioning, searching eyes. After that, her queerness came on very fast, and she descended into the hell of pain that is given to women alone to know. She was supported, half-carried, to the front bedroom. Many faces were about her, Mercedes, Mrs. Olson, Maggie Donahue. It seemed she must ask Mrs. Olson if she had saved little Emil from the street. But Mercedes cleared Mrs. Olson out to look after Bert, and Maggie Donahue went to answer a knock at the front door. From the street came a loud hum of voices, punctuated by shouts and commands, and from time to time there was a clanging of the gongs of ambulances and patrol wagons. Then appeared the fat, comfortable face of Martha Shelton, and later... Dr. Hentley came. Once, in a clear interval, through the thin wall, Saxon heard the high opening notes of Mary's hysteria, and another time she heard Mary repeating over and over, I'll never go back to the laundry. Never. Never. End of section 24
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Ten. Billy could never get over the shock during that period of Saxon's appearance. Morning after morning and evening after evening, when he came home from work, he would enter the room where she lay and fight a royal battle to hide his feelings and make a show of cheerfulness and geniality. She looked so small lying there, so small and shrunken and weary, and yet so childlike in her smallness. Tenderly, as he sat beside her, he would take up her pale hand and stroke the slim, transparent arm, marveling at the smallness and delicacy of the bones. One of her first questions, puzzling alike to Billy and Mary, was, Did they save little Emil Olson? And when she told them how he had attacked single-handed the whole twenty-four fighting men, Billy's face glowed with appreciation. The little cuss, he said, that's the kind of a kid to be proud of. He halted awkwardly, and his very evident fear that he had hurt her touched Saxon. She put her hand out to his. Billy, she began, then waited till Mary left the room. I've never asked before, not that it matters now, but I've waited for you to tell me. Was it? He shook his head. No, it was a girl, a perfect little girl, only it was too soon. She pressed his hand, and almost it was that she sympathized with him in his affliction. I never told you, Billy, you were so set on a boy, but I planned, just the same if it was a girl, to call her Daisy. You remember? That was my mother's name. He nodded his approbation. Say, Saxon, you know I did want a boy like the very Dickens. Well, I don't care now. I think I'm just set as hard on a girl, and, well, here's hoping the next will be called. You wouldn't mind, would you? What? If we called it the same name, Daisy? Oh, Billy, I was thinking the very same thing. Then his face grew stern as he went on. Only there ain't going to be a next. I didn't know what having children was like before. You can't run any more risks like that. Here, the big, strong, afraid man talked, she jeered with a wan smile. You don't know anything about it. How can a man? I am a healthy, natural woman. Everything would have been all right this time if... if all that fighting hadn't happened. Where did they bury Bert? You knew? All the time. And where's Mercedes? She hasn't been in for two days. Old Barry's sick. She's with him. He did not tell her that the old night watchman was dying, two thin walls and a half a dozen feet away. Saxon's lips were trembling, and she began to cry weakly, clinging to Billy's hand with both of hers. I, I can't help it, she sobbed. I'll be all right in a minute. Our little girl, Billy, think of it. And I never saw her. She was still lying on her bed when, one evening, Mary saw fit to break out in bitter thanksgiving that she had escaped, and was destined to escape what Saxon had gone through. Ah, oh, what are you talking about? Billy demanded. You'll get married sometime again, as sure as beans is beans. Not to the best man living, she proclaimed, and there ain't no call for it. There's too many people in the world now, else 
why are there two or three men for every job? And besides, having children is too terrible. Saxon, with a look of patient wisdom in her face that became glorified as she spoke, made answer. I ought to know what it means. I've been through it, and I'm still in the thick of it, and I want to say to you right now, out of all the pain and the ache and the sorrow, that it is the most beautiful, wonderful thing in the world. As Saxon's strength came back to her, and when Dr. Hentley had privily assured Billy that she was sound as a dollar, she herself took up the matter of the industrial tragedy that had taken place before her door. The militia had been called out immediately, Billy informed her, and was camped then at the foot of Pine Street on the waste ground next to the railroad yards. As for the strikers, fifteen of them were in jail. A house-to-house -house search had been made in the neighborhood by the police, and in this way nearly the whole fifteen, all wounded, had been captured. It would go hard with them, Billy foreboded gloomily. The newspapers were demanding blood for blood, and all the ministers in Oakland had preached fierce sermons against the strikers. The railroad had filled every place, and it was well known that the striking shopmen not only would never get their old jobs back, but were blacklisted in every railroad in the United States. Already they were beginning to scatter. A number had gone to Panama, and four were talking of going to Ecuador to work in the shops of the railroad that ran over the Andes to Quito. With anxiety keenly concealed, she tried to feel out Billy's opinion on what had happened. That shows what Bert's violent methods come to, she said. He shook his head slowly and gravely. They'll hang Chester Johnson anyway, he answered indirectly. You know him. You told me you used to dance with him. He was caught red-handed, lying on the body of a scab he beat to death. Old Jelly Belly's got three bullet holes in him, but he ain't going to die, and he's got Chester's number. They'll hang him on Jelly Belly's evidence. It was all in the papers. Jelly Belly shot him, too, a-hanging by the neck on our pickets. Saxon shuddered. Jelly Belly must be the man with the bald spot and the tobacco-stained whiskers. Yes, she said, I saw it all. It seemed he must have hung there for hours. It was all over from first to last in five minutes. It seemed ages and ages. I guess that's the way it seemed to Jelly Belly, stuck on those pickets, Billy smiled grimly. But he's a hard one to kill. He's been shot and cut up a dozen different times. But they say now he'll be crippled for life have to go around on crutches or in a wheelchair. That'll stop him from doing any more dirty work for the railroad. He was one of their top gun fighters, always up to his ears in the thick of any fighting that was going on. He never was leery of anything on two feet. I'll say that much for him. Where does he live? Saxon inquired. Up on Adeline, near Tenth. Fine neighborhood and fine two-storied house. He must pay thirty dollars a month rent. I guess the railroad paid him pretty well. Then he must be married. Yep. I never seen his wife, but he's got one son, Jack, a passenger engineer. I used to know him. He was a nifty boxer, though he never went into the ring. 
and he's got another son that's a teacher in the high school. His name's Paul. We're about the same age. He was great at baseball. I knew him when we was kids. He pitched me out three times hand-running once when the Durant played the Cole school. Saxon sat back in the Morris chair, resting and thinking. The problem was growing more complicated than ever. This elderly, round-bellied, and bald-headed gunfighter, too, had a wife and family. And there was Frank Davis, married barely a year, with a baby boy. Perhaps the scab he shot in the stomach had a wife and children. All seemed to be acquainted, members of a very large family, and yet, because of their particular families, they battered and killed each other. She had seen Chester Johnson kill a scab, and now they were going to hang Chester Johnson, who had married Kitty Brady out of the cannery, and she and Kitty Brady had worked together years before in the paper-box factory. Vainly Saxon waited for Billy to say something that would show he did not countenance the killing of the scabs. It was wrong, she ventured finally. They killed Bert, he countered. And a lot of others. And Frank Davis, did you know he was dead? Had his whole lower jaw shot away. Died in the ambulance before they could get him to the receiving hospital. There was never so much killing at one time in Oakland before. But it was their fault, she contended. They began it. It was murder. Billy did not reply. She heard him mutter hoarsely. She knew, he said, God damn them. But when she asked what, he made no answer. His eyes were deep with troubled clouds, while the mouth had hardened and all his face was bleak. To her it was a heart stab. Was he too like the rest? Would he kill other men who had families like Bert and Frank Davis and Chester Johnson had killed? Was he too a wild beast, a dog that will snarl over a bone? She sighed. Life was a strange puzzle. Perhaps Mercedes Higgins was right in her cruel statement of the terms of existence. What of it? Billy laughed harshly, as if in answer to her unuttered question. It's dog-eat-dog, -dog, I guess, and it's always been that way. Take that scrap outside. They killed each other, just like the North and the South did in the Civil War. But working man can't win that way, Billy. You say yourself that it spoiled their chance of winning. I suppose not, he admitted reluctantly. But what other chance they've got to win, I don't see. Look at us. We'll be up against it next. Not the Teamster, she cried. He nodded gloomily. The bosses are cutting loose all along the line for a high old time. Say they're going to beat us to our knees till we come crawling back and begging for our jobs. They've bucked up real high and mighty. What of all the killing the other day? Having the troops out is half the fight, along with having the preachers and the papers and the public behind them. They're shooting off their mouths already about what they're going to do. They're sure gunning for trouble. First they're going to hang Chester Johnson and as many more of the fifteen as they can. They say that flat. The Tribune and the Enquirer and the Times keep saying it over and over every day. They're all union busting to beat the band. No more closed shop. The hell with organized labor. 
why the dirty little intelligencer came out this morning and said that every union official in Oakland ought to be run out of town or stretched up. Fine, huh? You bet it's fine. Look at us. It ain't a case any more of a sympathetic strike for the mill workers. We've got our own troubles. They fired our four best men, the ones that was always on the conference committees. Did it without cause. They're looking for trouble, as I told you, and they'll get it, too, if they don't watch out. We got our tip from the Frisco Waterfront Confederation. With them backing us, we'll go some. You mean you'll strike? Saxon asked. He bent his head. But isn't that what they want you to do, from the way they're acting? What's the difference? Billy shrugged his shoulders, then continued. It's better to strike than to get fired. We beat them to it, that's all, and we catch them before they're ready. Don't we know what they're doing? They're collecting grading camp drivers and mule skinners all up and down the state. They've got forty of them, feeding them in a hotel in Stockton right now, and ready to rush them in on us, and hundreds more like them. So this Saturday's the last wages I'll likely bring home for some time. Saxon closed her eyes and thought quietly for five minutes. It was not her way to take things excitedly. The coolness of poise that Billy so admired never deserted her in time of emergency. She realized that she herself was no more than a moat caught up in this tangled, non-understandable conflict of many moats. "'We'll have to draw from our savings to pay for this month's rent,' she said brightly. Billy's face fell. "'We ain't got as much in the bank as you think,' he confessed. "'Bert had to be buried, you know, and I coughed up what the others couldn't raise.' "'How much was it?' Forty dollars. I was going to stand off the butcher and the rest for a while. They knew I was good pay, but they put it to me straight. They'd been carrying the shopmen right along and was up against it themselves. And now, with that strike smashed, they're pretty much smashed themselves. So I took it all out of the bank. I knew you wouldn't mind. You don't, do you? She smiled bravely and bravely overcame the sinking feeling at her heart. It was the only right thing to do, Billy. I would have done it if you were lying sick, and Bert would have done it for you and me if it had been the other way round. His face was glowing. Gee, Saxon, a fellow can always count on you. You're like my right hand. That's why I say no more babies. If I lose you, I'm crippled for life. We've got to economize, she mused, nodding her appreciation. How much is in the bank? Just about thirty dollars, you see. I had to pay Martha Skelton and for the a few other little things. And the union took time by the neck and levied a four-dollar emergency assessment on every member just to be ready if the strike was pulled off. But Doc Hentley can wait. He said as much. He's the goods, if anybody should ask you. How'd you like him? I liked him. But I don't know about doctors. He's the first I ever had, except when I was vaccinated once, and then the city did that. Looks like the streetcar men are going out, too. Dan Fallon's come to town. Came all the way from New York. Tried to sneak in on the quiet. 
but the fellows knew when he left New York and kept track of him all the way across. They have to. He's Johnny on the spot whenever streetcar men are licked into shape. He's won lots of streetcar strikes for the bosses. Keeps an army of strike breakers and ships them all over the country on special trains wherever they're needed. Oakland's never seen labor troubles like she's got and is going to get. All hell's going to break loose from the looks of it. Watch out for yourself, then, Billy. I don't want to lose you, either. Oh, that's all right. I can take care of myself, and besides, it ain't as though we was licked. We've got a good chance. But you'll lose if there's any killing. Yep, we got to keep an eye out against that. No violence? No gunfighting or dynamite, he assented. But a heap of scabs will get their heads broke. That has to be. But you won't do any of that, Billy. Not so any slob can testify before a court to having seen me. Then, with a quick shift, he changed the subject. Old Barry Higgins is dead. I didn't want to tell you till you was out of bed. Buried him a week ago. And the old woman's moving to Frisco. She told me she'd be in to say goodbye. She stuck by you pretty well them first couple of days, and she showed Martha Shelton a few that made her hair curl. She got Martha's goat from the jump. End of section 25section 26 of the valley of the moon by jack london this librivox recording is in the public domain book 2 chapter 11 with billy on strike and away doing picket duty and with the departure of mercedes and the death of bert saxon was left much to herself in a loneliness that even in one as healthy-minded as she could not fail to produce morbidness Mary, too, had left, having spoken vaguely of taking a job at housework in Piedmont. Billy could help Saxon little in her trouble. He dimly sensed her suffering, without comprehending the scope and intensity of it. He was too man-practical, and by his very sex, too remote from the intimate tragedy that was hers. He was an outsider at the best, a friendly onlooker who saw little. To her the baby had been quick and real. It was still quick and real. That was her trouble. By no deliberate effort of will could she fill the aching void of its absence. Its reality became at times an hallucination. Somewhere it still was, and she must find it. She would catch herself on occasion, listening with strained ears for the cry she had never heard, yet which, in fancy, she had heard a thousand times in the happy months before the end. Twice she left her bed in her sleep and went searching, each time coming to herself beside her mother's chest of drawers, in which were the tiny garments. To herself at such moments she would say, I had a baby once, and she would say it aloud as she watched the children playing in the street. One day on the Eighth Street cars, a young mother sat beside her, a crowing infant in her arms. And Saxon said to her, I had a baby once that died. The mother looked at her startled, half drew the baby tighter in her arms, jealousy, or as in fear, 
Then she softened and said, You poor thing. Yes, said Saxon, it died. Tears welled into her eyes, and the telling of her grief seemed to have brought relief. But all the day she suffered from an almost overwhelming desire to recite her sorrow to the world, to the paying teller at the bank, to the elderly floor-walker in Salinger's, and to the blind woman guided by a little boy who played on the concertina, to everyone save the policeman. The police were new and terrible creatures to her now. She had seen them kill the strikers as mercilessly as the strikers had killed the scabs. And unlike the strikers, the police were professional killers. They were not fighting for jobs. They did it as a business. They could have taken prisoners that day in the angle of the front steps and her house, but they had not. Unconsciously, whenever approaching one, she edged across the sidewalk so as to get as far as possible away from him. She did not reason it out. But deeper than consciousness was the feeling that they were typical of something inimical to her and hers. At 8th and Broadway, waiting for her car to return home, the policeman on the corner recognized her and greeted her. She turned white to the lips, and her heart fluttered painfully. It was only Ned Hermanman, fatter, broader-faced, jollier-looking than ever. He had sat across the aisle from her for three terms at school. He and she had been monitors together of the composition books for one term. The day the powder works blew up at Pinoli, breaking every window in the school, he and she had not joined in the panic rush for out of doors. Both had remained in the room, and the irate principal had exhibited them from room to room to the cowardly classes, and then rewarded them with a month's holiday from school. And after that Ned Hermanman had become a policeman, and married Lena Hyland, and Saxon had heard they had five children. But in spite of all that, he was now a policeman, and Billy was now a striker. Might not Ned Hermanman some day club and shoot Billy, just as those other policemen clubbed and shot the strikers by her front steps? "'What's the matter, Saxon?' he asked, sick. She nodded and choked, unable to speak, and started to move toward her car, which was coming to a stop. "'I'll help you,' he offered. She shrank away from his hand. "'No, I'm all right,' she gasped hurriedly. "'I'm not going to take it. I've forgotten something.' She turned away dizzily, up Broadway to Ninth. Two blocks along Ninth, she turned down Clay and back to Eighth Street, where she waited for another car. As the summer months dragged along, the industrial situation in Oakland grew steadily worse. Capital everywhere seemed to have selected the city for the battleground with organized labor. So many men in Oakland were out on strike, or were locked out, or were unable to work because of the dependence of their trades on the other tied-up trades, that odd jobs at common labor were hard to obtain. Billy occasionally got a day's work to do, but did not earn enough to make both ends meet, despite the small strike wages received at first, and despite the rigid economy he and Saxon practiced. 
The table she set had scarcely anything in common with that of the first married year. Not alone was every item of cheaper quality, but many items had disappeared. Meat and the poorest was very seldom on the table. Cow's milk had given place to condensed milk, and even the sparing use of the latter had ceased. A roll of butter, when they had it, lasted half a dozen times as long as formerly. Where Billy had been used to drinking three cups of coffee for breakfast, he now drank one. Saxon boiled this coffee an atrocious length of time, and she paid twenty cents a pound for it. The blight of hard times was on all the neighborhood. The families not involved in one strike were touched by some other strike or by the cessation of work in some dependent trade. Many single young men who were lodgers had drifted away, thus increasing the house rent of the families which had sheltered them. Got, said the butcher to Saxon, we working class all suffer together. My wife, she cannot get her teeth fixed now. Pretty soon I go smash broke, maybe. Once when Billy was preparing to pawn his watch, Saxon suggested his borrowing the money from Billy Murphy. I was planning that, Billy answered, only I can't now. I didn't tell you what happened Tuesday night at the Sportin' Life Club. You remember that square-head champion of the United States Navy? Billy was matched with him, and it was sure easy money. Billy had him going south by the end of the sixth round, and at the seventh went in to finish him, and then, just as luck, for his trade's idle now, he snaps his right forearm. Of course the square head comes back at him on the jump, and it's good night for Bill. Gee, us Mahiggins are getting our bad luck handed to us in chunks these days. Don't, Saxon cried, shuddering involuntarily. What, Billy asked, with open mouth of surprise. Don't say that word again. Bert was always saying it. Oh, Mahiggins, all right, I won't. You ain't superstitious, are you? No, but just the same. There's too much truth in the word for me to like it. Sometimes it seems as though he was right. Times have changed. They've changed ever since I was a little girl. We crossed the plains and opened up this country, and now we're losing even the chance to work for a living in it. And it's not my fault. It's not your fault. We've got to live well or bad, just by luck, it seems. There's no other way to explain it. It beats me, Billy concurred. Look at the way I worked last year. Never missed a day. I'd want to never miss a day this year, and here I haven't done a tap for weeks and weeks and weeks. Say, who runs this country anyway? Saxon had stopped the morning paper, but frequently Maggie Donahue's boy, who served the Tribune route, tossed an extra on her steps. From its editorials, Saxon gleaned that organized labor was trying to run the country, and that it was making a mess of it. It was all the fault of domineering labor, so ran the editorials, column by column, day by day. And Saxon was convinced, yet remained unconvinced. The social puzzle of living was too intricate. The Teamsters' strike, backed financially by the Teamsters of San Francisco, 
and by the allied unions of the San Francisco Waterfront Confederation, promised to be long drawn, whether or not it was successful. The Oakland harness washers and stablemen, with few exceptions, had gone out with the Teamsters. The teaming firms were not half-filling their contracts, but the Employers' Association was helping them. In fact, half the Employers' Associations of the Pacific Coast were helping the Oakland Employers' Association. Saxon was behind a month's rent, which, when it is considered that rent was paid in advance, was equivalent to two months. Likewise, she was two months behind in the installments on the furniture. Yet she was not pressed very hard by Salinger's, the furniture dealers. "'We're giving you all the rope we can,' said their collector. "'My order is to make you dig up every cent I can, and at the same time not to be too hard. Salinger's are trying to do the right thing, but they're up against it, too. You've no idea how many accounts like yours they're carrying along. Sooner or later they'll have to call a halt or get it in the neck themselves. And in the meantime, just see if you can't scrape up five dollars by next week, just to cheer them along, you know. One of the stablemen who had not gone out, Henderson by name, worked at Billy's stables. Despite the urging of the bosses to eat and sleep in the stable like the other men, Henderson had persisted in coming home each morning to his little house around the corner from Saxon's on Fifth Street. Several times she had seen him swinging along defiantly, his dinner pail in his hand, while the neighborhood boys dogged his heels at a safe distance and informed him in yapping chorus that he was a scab and no good. But one evening, on his way to work, in a spirit of bravado, he went into the pile-driver's home, the saloon at Seventh and Pine. There it was his mortal mischance to encounter Otto Frank, a striker who drove from the same stable. Not many minutes later, an ambulance was hurrying Henderson to the receiving hospital with a fractured skull, while a patrol wagon was no less swift carrying Otto Frank to the city prison. Maggie Donahue it was, eyes shining with gladness, who told Saxon of the happening. Served him right to the dirty scab, Maggie concluded. But his poor wife, was Saxon's cry. She's not strong. And then the children. She'll never be able to take care of them if her husband dies. And serves her right, the damn slut. Saxon was both shocked and hurt by this Irish woman's brutality. But Maggie was implacable. "'Tis all she or any woman deserves that'll put up living with a scab. What about her children? Let em starve, and her man a taken the food out of other children's mouths. Mrs. Olson's attitude was different. Beyond passive sentimental pity for Henderson's wife and children, she gave them no thought, her chief concern being for Otto Frank, and Otto Frank's wife and children, herself, and Mrs. Frank being full sisters. If he dies, they will hang Otto, she said. And then what will poor Hilda do? She has varicose veins in both legs, and she can never stand on her feet all day and work for wages. And me, I cannot help. Ain't Carl out of work, too? 
Billy had still another point of view. It will give the strike a black eye, especially if Henderson croaks, he worried, when he came home. They'll hang Frank on record time. Besides, we'll have to put up a defense, and lawyers charge like Sam Hill. They'll eat a hole in our treasury you could drive every team in Oakland through. And if Frank hasn't been screwed up with whiskey, he'd never have done it. He's the mildest, good-naturedest man, sober, you ever seen. Twice that evening, Billy left the house to find out if Henderson was dead yet. In the morning, the papers gave little hope, and the evening papers published his death. Otto Frank lay in jail without bail. The Tribune demanded a quick trial and summary execution, calling on the prospective jury manfully to do its duty and dwelling at length on the moral effect that would be so produced upon a lawless working class. It went further, emphasizing the salutary effect machine guns would have on the mob that had taken the fair city of Oakland by the throat. All such occurrences struck at Saxon personally. Practically alone in the world, save for Billy, it was her life and his, and their mutual love life that was menaced. From the moment he left the house to the moment of his return, she knew no peace of mind. Rough work was afoot, of which he told her nothing, and she knew he was playing his part in it. On more than one occasion she noticed fresh broken skin on his knuckles. At such times he was remarkably taciturn, and would sit in brooding silence or go almost immediately to bed. She was afraid to have this habit of recitance grow on him, and bravely she bid for his confidence. She climbed into his lap and inside his arms, one of her arms around his neck, and with the free hand she caressed his hair back from the forehead and smoothed out the moody brows. Now listen to me, Billy boy, she began lightly. You haven't been playing fair, and I won't have it. No. She pressed his lips shut with her fingers. I'm doing the talking now, and because you haven't been doing your share of the talking for some time. You remember we agreed at the start to always talk things over. I was the first to break this when I sold my fancy work to Mrs. Higgins, without speaking to you about it, and I was very sorry. I am still sorry, and I've never done it since. Now it's your turn. You're not talking things over with me. You are doing things you don't tell me about. Billy, you're dearer to me than anything else in the world. You know that. We're sharing each other's lives, only just now there's something you're not sharing. Every time your knuckles are sore, there's something you don't share. If you can't trust me, you can't trust anybody. And besides, I love you so that no matter what you do, I'll go on loving you just the same. Billy gazed at her with fond incredulity. Don't be a pincher, she teased. Remember, I stand for whatever you do. And you won't buck against me, he queried. How can I? I'm not your boss, Billy. I wouldn't boss you for anything in the world. And if you'd let me boss you, I wouldn't love you half as much. He digested this slowly and finally nodded. And you won't be mad? With you? You've never seen me mad yet. Now come on and be generous 
and tell me how you hurt your knuckles. It's fresh today. Anybody can see that. All right, I'll tell you how it happened. He stopped and giggled with genuine boyish glee at some recollection. It's like this. You won't be mad now. We got to do these sort of things to hold our own. Well, here's the show. A regular moving picture, except for talking. Here's a big rube coming along, hayseed sticking out all over, hands like hams and feet like Mississippi gunboats. He'd make half as much again as me in size, and he's young, too. Only he ain't looking for trouble, and he's as innocent as... Well, he's the innocentest scab that ever come down the pike and bumped into a couple of pickets. Not a regular strike-breaker, you see. Just a big rube that read the boss's ads and come a-humpin' to town for the big wages. And here's Bud Struthers and me coming along. We always go in pairs that way, and sometimes in bigger bunches. I flag the rube. Hello, says I, looking for a job. You bet, says he. Can you drive? Yep. Four horses? Show me to him, says he. No josh now, says I. You sure wanting to drive? That's what I come to town for, he says. You're the man we're looking for, says I. Come along, and we'll have you busy in no time. You see, Saxon, we can't pull it off there, because there's Tom Scanlon, you know, the red-headed cop, only a couple of blocks away, and pipping us off, though not recognizing us. So away we go, the three of us, Bud and me, letting that boob, to take our jobs away from us, I guess, nip. We turn into the alley, back of Campbell's grocery. Nobody in sight. Bud stops short, and the rube and me stop. I don't think he wants to drive, says Bud, considering, and the rube says, quick, you bet your life I do. You're dead sure you want that job, I says. Yes, he's dead sure. Nothing's going to keep him away from that job. Why, that job's what he's come to town for, and we can't lead him to it too quick. My friend, says I, it's my sad duty to inform you that you've made a mistake. How's that, he says. Go on, I says. You're standing on your foot. And honest to God, Saxon, the gink looks down at his feet to see. I don't understand, says he. We're going to show you, says I. And then, biff, bang, bingo, swat, suey, kerslam, bango, blam, fireworks, fourth of July, kingdom come, blue lights, skyrockets, and hellfire, just like that. It don't take long when you're scientific and trained to tandem work. Of course it's hard on the knuckles, but say, Saxon, if you'd seen that rube before and after, you'd thought he was a lightning-change artist. Laugh. You'd have busted. Billy halted to give vent to his own mirth. Saxon forced herself to join with him, but down in her heart was horror. Mercedes was right. The stupid workers wrangled and snarled over jobs. The clever masters rode in automobiles, and did not wrangle and snarl. They hired other stupid ones to do the wrangling and snarling for them. It was men like Bert and Frank Davis and Chester Johnson and Otto Frank, like Jelly Belly, 
and the Pinkertons, like Henderson and all the rest of the scabs, who were beaten up, shot, clubbed, or hanged. Ah, the clever ones were very clever. Nothing happened to them. They only rode in their automobiles. You big stiffs, the rube snivels as he crawls to his feet at the end, Billy was continuing. You think you still want that job, I ask? He shakes his head. Then I read him the riot act. There's only one thing for you to do, old hoss, and that's beat it. Do you get me? Beat it. Back to the farm for you. And if you come monkeying around town again, we'll be real mad at you. We was only fooling this time. But next time we catch you, your own mother won't know you when we get done with you. And say, you ought to seen him beat it. I'll bet he's going yet. And when he gets back to Milpitas or Sleepy Hollow, or wherever he hangs out, and tells how the boys does things in Oakland, it's dollar to donuts. There won't be a rube in this district that come to town to drive if they offered him ten dollars an hour. It was awful, Saxon said, then laughed well-simulated appreciation. But that was nothing, Billy went on. A bunch of the boys caught another one this morning. They didn't do a thing to him. My goodness gracious, no. In less than two minutes, he was the worst wreck they ever hauled to the receiving hospital. The evening papers gave the score. Nose broken. Three bad scalp wounds, front teeth out, a broken collarbone, and two broken ribs. Gee, he certainly got all that was coming to him. But that's nothing. Do you want to know what the Frisco Teamsters did in the big strike before the earthquake? They took every scab they caught and broke both his arms with a crowbar. That was so he couldn't drive, you see. Say the hospitals are filled with them, and the Teamsters won that strike, too. But is it necessary, Billy, to be so terrible? I know they're scabs, and that they're taking the bread out of the striker children's mouths to put in their own children's mouths, and that it isn't fair and all that, but just the same. Is it necessary to be so terrible? Sure thing, Billy answered confidently. We just go to throw the fear of God into them, when we could do it without being caught. And if you're caught, then the union hires the lawyers to defend us, though that ain't much good now, for the judges are pretty hostile, and the papers keep hammering away at them to give stiffer and stiffer sentences. Just the same, before this strike's over, there'll be a whole lot of guys a-wishin' they'd never gone scabbin'. Very cautiously, in the next half hour, Saxon tried to feel out her husband's attitude, to find if he doubted the rightness of the violence he and his brother Teamsters committed. But Billy's ethical sanction was rock-bedded and profound. It never entered his head that he was not absolutely right. It was the game. Caught in its tangled meshes, he could see no other way to play it than the way all men played it. He did not stand for dynamite and murder, however. But then the unions did not stand for such. Quite naive was his explanation that dynamite and murder did not pay. That such actions always brought down the condemnation of the public and broke the strikes. But the healthy beating up of a scab, he contended, the throwing of fear of God into a scab, as he expressed it, 
was the only right and proper thing to do. Our folks never had to do such things, Saxon said finally. They never had no strikes nor scabs in those times. You bet they didn't, Billy agreed. Them was the good old days. I'd like to live then. He drew a long breath and sighed. But them times will never come again. Would you have liked living in the country? Saxon asked. Sure thing. There's lots of men living in the country now, she suggested. Just the same. I noticed them a-hiking the town to get our jobs, was his reply. End of section 26「The Valley of the Moon」by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Twelve. A gleam of light came when Billy got a job, driving a grading team for the contractors of the big bridge, then building at Niles. Before he went, he made certain that it was a union job, and a union job it was for two days when the concrete workers threw down their tools. The contractors, evidently prepared for such happening, immediately filled the places of the concrete men with non-union Italians, whereupon the carpenters, structural iron workers, and teamsters walked out, and Billy, lacking train fare, spent the rest of the day in walking home. I couldn't work as a scab, he concluded his tale. No, Saxon said, you couldn't work as a scab. But she wondered why it was when men wanted to work, and there was work to do, yet they were unable to work because their unions said no. Why were there unions, and if unions had to be, why were not all working men in them? Then there would be no scabs, and Billy could work every day. Also she wondered where she was going to get a sack of flour for she had long since ceased the extravagance of baker's bread, and so many other of the neighborhood women had done this also, that the little Welsh baker had closed up shop and gone away, taking his wife and two little daughters with him. Look where she would, everybody was being hurt by the industrial strife. One afternoon a caller came at her door, and that evening Billy came with dubious news. He had been approached that day. All he had to do, he told Saxon, was to say the word, and he could go into the stables as foreman at one hundred dollars a month. The nearness of such a sum, the possibility of it, almost stunning to Saxon, sitting at the supper table, which consisted of boiled potatoes, warmed over beans, and a small dry onion which they were eating raw. There was neither bread, coffee, nor butter. The onion, Billy had pulled from his pocket, having picked it up in the street. One hundred dollars a month. She moistened her lips and fought for control. "'What made them offer it to you?' she questioned. "'That's easy,' was his answer. "'They've got a dozen reasons.' "'The guy the boss has had exercising, Prince and King, is a dub. King has gone lame in the shoulders. Then they're guessing pretty strong that I'm the party that's put a lot of their scabs out of commission. Macklin's been their foreman for years and years. Why, I was in knee pants when he was a foreman. Well, he's sick and all in. 
They gotta have somebody to take his place. Then, too, I've been with him a long time. And on top of that, I'm the man for the job. Then I know the horses from the ground up. Hell, it's all I'm good for, except slugging. Think of it, Billy, she breathed. A hundred dollars a month. A hundred dollars a month. And throw the fellows down, he said. It was not a question, nor was it a statement. It was anything Saxon chose to make of it. They looked at each other. She waited for him to speak. But he continued merely to look. It came to her that she was facing one of the decisive moments of her life. She gripped herself to face it in all coolness. Nor would Billy proffer her the slightest help. Whatever his own judgment might be, he masked it with an expressionless face. His eyes betrayed nothing. He looked and waited. You, you can't do that, Billy, she said finally. You can't throw the fellows down. His hand shot out to hers, and his face was a sudden, radiant dawn. Put her there, he cried, their hands meeting and clasping. You're the truest, true blue wife a man ever had. If all the other fellows had wives like you, we could win any strike we tackled. What would you have done if you weren't married, Billy? Seen him in hell first. Then it doesn't make any difference being married. I've got to stand by you in everything you stand for. I'd be a nice wife if I didn't. She remembered her caller of the afternoon and knew the moment was too propitious to let pass. There was a man here this afternoon, Billy. He wanted a room. I told him I'd speak to you. He said he would pay six dollars a month for the back bedroom. That would pay half a month's installment on the furniture and buy a sack of flour. And we're all out of flour. Billy's old hostility to the idea was instantly uppermost, and Saxon watched him anxiously. Some scab in the shops, I suppose. No, he's firing on the freight run to San Jose. Harmon, he said his name was, James Harmon. They just transferred him from the Truckee Division. He sleeps days, mostly, he said, and that's why he wanted a quiet house without children in it. In the end, with much misgiving, and only after Saxon had insistently pointed out how little work it entailed on her, Billy consented, though he continued to protest as an afterthought. But I don't want you making beds for any man. It ain't right, Saxon. I ought to take care of you. And you would, she flashed back at him, if you'd take the foremanship. Only you can't. It wouldn't be right. And if I'm to stand by you, it's only fair to let me do what I can. James Harmon proved even less a bother than Saxon had anticipated. For a fireman, he was scrupulously clean, always washing up in the roundhouse before he came home. He used the key to the kitchen door, coming and going by the back steps. To Saxon, he barely said, How do you do? or good day, and sleeping in the daytime and working at night, he was in the house a week before Billy laid eyes on him. Billy had taken to coming home later and later, and going out after supper by himself. He did not offer to tell Saxon where he went, nor did she ask. For that matter, it required little shrewdness on her part to guess. 
The fumes of whiskey were on his lips at such times. His slow, deliberate ways were even slower, even more deliberate. Liquor did not affect his legs. He walked as soberly as any man. There was no hesitancy, no faltering, in his muscular movements. The whiskey went to his brain, making his eyes heavy-lidded and the cloudiness of them more cloudy. Not that he was flighty, nor quick, nor irritable. On the contrary, the liquor imparted to his mental processes a deep gravity and brooding solemnity. He talked little, but that little was ominous and oracular. At such times there was no appeal from his judgment, no discussion. He knew as God knew, and when he chose to speak a harsh thought, it was tenfold harsher than ordinarily, because it seemed to proceed out of such profundity of cogitation, because it was prodigiously deliberate in its incubation as it was in its enunciation. It was not a nice side he was showing to Saxon. It was almost as if a stranger had come to live with her. Despite herself, she found herself beginning to shrink from him, and little could she comfort herself with the thought that it was not his real self, for she remembered his gentleness and considerateness, and all his fineness of the past. Then he made a continual effort to avoid trouble and fighting. Now he enjoyed it, exulted in it, went looking for it. All this showed in his face. No longer was he the smiling, pleasant-faced boy. He smiled infrequently now. His face was a man's face. The lips, the eyes, the lines were harsh as his thoughts were harsh. He was rarely unkind to Saxon, but on the other hand, he was rarely kind. His attitude toward her was growing negative. He was disinterested. Despite the fight for the union she was enduring with him, putting up with him shoulder to shoulder, she occupied but little space in his mind. When he acted toward her gently, she could see that it was merely mechanical. Just as she was well aware that the endearing terms he used, the endearing caresses he gave, were only habitual. The spontaneity and warmth had gone out. Often when he was not in liquor, flashes of the old Billy came back, but even such flashes dwindled in frequency. He was growing preoccupied, moody. Hard times and the bitter stresses of industrial conflict strained him. Especially was this apparent in his sleep, when he suffered paroxysms of lawless dreams, groaning and muttering, clenching his fists, grinding his teeth, twisting with muscular tensions, his face writhing with passions and violence, his throat guttering with terrible curses that rasped and aborted on his lips, and Saxon, lying beside him, afraid of this visitor to her bed whom she did not know, remembered what Mary had told her of Bert. He too had cursed and clenched his fists in his nights fought out the battles of his days. One thing, however, Saxon saw clearly. By no deliberate act of Billy's was he becoming this other and unlovely Billy. Were there no strike, no snarling or wrangling over jobs, there would be only the old Billy she had loved in all absoluteness. The sleeping terror in him would have lain asleep. 
It was something that was being awakened in him, an image incarnate of outward conditions, as cruel, as ugly, as maleficent as were those outward conditions. But if the strike continued, then, she feared with reason, would this other and grisly self of Billy strengthen the fuller and more forbidding stature? And this, she knew, would mean the wreck of their love life. Such a Billy she could not love. In its nature, such a Billy was not lovable nor capable of love. And then, as the thought of offspring, she shuddered. It was too terrible. At such moments of contemplation, from her soul, the inevitable plaint of the human went up. Why, why, why? Billy, too, had his unanswerable queries. Why won't the building trades come out, he demanded wrathfully, of the obscurity that veiled the ways of living and the world? But no, O'Brien won't stand for a strike, and he has the building trades council under his thumb. But why don't they chuck him and come out anyway? We'd win hands down all along the line. But no, O'Brien's got their goat, and him up to his dirty neck, in politics and graft. And damn the Federation of Labor. If all the railroad boys had come out, wouldn't the shopmen have won, instead of being licked to a frazzle? Lord, I ain't had a smoke of decent tobacco or a cup of decent coffee in a coon's age. I've forgotten what a square meal tastes like. I weighed myself yesterday fifteen pounds lighter than when the strike begun. If it keeps on much more, I can fight middleweight, and this is what I get after paying dues into a union for years and years. I can't get a square meal. My wife has to make other men's beds. It makes my tired ache. Some day I'll get really huffy and chuck that lodger out. But it's not his fault, Billy, Saxon protested. Who said it was? Billy snapped roughly. Can't I kick in general if I want to? Just the same, it makes me sick. What's the good of organized labor if it don't stand together? For two cents, I'd chuck the whole thing up and go over to the employers. Only I wouldn't, God damn them. If they think they can beat us down to our knees, let them go ahead and try it, that's all. But it gets me just the same. The whole world's clean dippy. There ain't no sense in anything. What's the good of supporting a union that can't win a strike? What's the good of knocking the blocks off the scabs when they keep coming thick as ever? The whole thing's a bug house, and I guess I am too. Such an outburst on Billy's part was so unusual that it was the only time Saxon knew it to occur. Always he was sullen and dogged and unwhipped, while whiskey only served to set the maggots of certitude crawling in his brain. One night, Billy did not get home till after twelve. Saxon's anxiety was increased by the fact that police fighting and head-breaking had been reported to have occurred. When Billy came, his appearance verified the report. His coat sleeves were half torn off. The Windsor tie had disappeared from under his soft turned-down collar, and every button had been ripped off the front of the shirt. When he took his hat off, Saxon was frightened by a lump on his head the size of an apple. Do you know who did that? 
that Dutch slob Hermanman, with a riot club, and I'll get him for it some day, good and plenty. And there's another fellow I've got staked out that'll be my meat when this strike's over, and things is settled down. Blanchard's his name, Roy Blanchard. Not of Blanchard, Perkins, and company, Saxon asked, busy washing Billy's hurt and making her usual fight to keep him calm. Yup, except he's the son of the old man. What he'd do? That ain't done a tap of work in all his life except to blow the old man's money. He goes strike-breaking. Grandstand play, that's what I call it. Gets his name in the papers and makes all the skirts he run with fluster up and say, My, some bear, that Roy Blanchard, some bear. Some bear? The gazebo? He'll be bear meat for me some day. I never itched so hard to lick a man in my life. And oh, I guess, I'll pass that Dutch cop up. He got his already. Somebody broke his head with a lump of coal the size of a water bucket. That was when the wagons was turning into Franklin, just off 8th, by the old Galindo Hotel. There was hard fighting there, and some guy in the hotel lamps that coal down from the second-story window. There was fighting every block of the way, bricks, cobblestone, and police clubs to beat the band. They don't dast call out the troops. And they was afraid to shoot. Why, we tore holes through the police force, and the ambulances and patrol wagons worked overtime. But say, we got the procession blocked at 14th and Broadway, right under the nose of the city hall, rushed to the rear end, cut out the horses of five wagons, and handed them college boys a few love pats in passing. All that saved them from hospital was the police reserve. Just the same, we had them jammed an hour there. You ought to seen the streetcars blocked, too. Broadway, 14th, San Pueblo, as far as you could see. But what did Blanchard do? Saxon called him back. He led the procession and drove my team. All the teams was from my stable. He rounded up a lot of them college fellows, fraternity guys, they're called, yaps that live off their father's money. They come to the stable in big touring cars and drove out the wagons with half the police of Oakland to help them. Say, it was sure some day, the sky rained cobblestones. And you ought to heard the clubs on our heads. Rat-tat-tat-tat, rat-tat-tat-tat. And say, the chief of police, in a police auto, sitting up like God Almighty, just before we got to Peralta Street, there was a block and the police charging. And an old woman, right from her front gate, Lamb the chief of police full in the face with a dead cat. Phew, you could hear it. Arrest that woman, he yells, with his handkerchief out. But the boys beat the cops to her and got her away. Some day, I guess, yes. The receiving hospital went out of commission, on the jump, and the overflow was spilled into St. Mary's Hospital and Fabiola, and I don't know where else. Eight of our men was pulled and a dozen of the Frisco Teamsters that come over to help. They're holy terrors, them Frisco Teamsters. It seemed half the working men in Oakland was helping us, and they must be an army of them in jail. Our lawyers will have to take their cases, too. But take it from me, 
It's the last we'll see of Roy Blanchard and yaps of his kidney butting into our affairs. I guess we showed him some football. You know that brick building they're putting up on Bay Street? That's where we loaded up first, and say, you couldn't see the wagon seats for bricks when they started from the stables. Blanchard drove the first wagon, and he was not clean off the seat once, but he stayed with it. He must have been brave, Saxon commented. Brave, Billy fared, with the police and the army and the navy behind him. I suppose you'll be taking their part next. Brave, a taking the food out of the mouths of our women and children. Didn't Curly Jones' little kid die last night? Mother's milk not nourishing, that's what it was, because she didn't have the right stuff to eat. And I know, and you know, a dozen old aunts and sisters-in-laws and such that had to hike to the poorhouse because their folks couldn't take care of them in these times. In the morning paper, Saxon read the exciting account of a futile attempt to break the Teamster strike. Roy Blanchard was hailed as a hero and held up as a model of wealthy citizenship, and to save herself she could not help glowing with appreciation of his courage. There was something fine in his going out to face the snarling pack. A brigadier general of the regular army was quoted as lamenting the fact that the troops had not been called out to take the mob by the throat and shake law and order into it. This is the time for a little healthful bloodletting, was the conclusion of his remarks after deploring the pacific methods of the police. For not until the mob has been thoroughly beaten and cowed will tranquil industrial conditions obtain. That evening Saxon and Billy went uptown. Returning home and finding nothing to eat, he had taken her on one arm, his overcoat on the other. The overcoat he had pawned at Uncle Sam's, and he and Saxon had eaten drearily at a Japanese restaurant which, in some miraculous way, managed to set a semi-satisfying meal for ten cents after eating. They started on their way to spend an additional five cents each on a moving picture show. At the central bank building, two striking teamsters accosted Billy and took him away with them. Saxon waited on the corner, and when he returned, three-quarters of an hour later, she knew he had been drinking. Half a block on, passing the Forum Café, he stopped suddenly. A limousine stood at the curb, and into it a young man was helping several wonderfully gowned women. A chauffeur sat in the driver's seat. Billy touched the young man on the arm. He was as broad-shouldered as Billy and slightly taller. Blue-eyed, strong-featured, in Saxon's opinion, he was undeniably handsome. Just a word, sport, Billy said in a low, slow voice. The young man glanced quickly at Billy and Saxon, and asked impatiently, Well, what is it? You're Blanchard, Billy began. I seen you yesterday lead out that bunch of teams. Didn't I do it all right? Blanchard asked gaily, with a flash of glance to Saxon and back again. Sure, but that ain't what I want to talk about. Who are you? the other demanded with sudden suspicion. A striker. It just happens you drove my team, that's all. No, don't move for a gun. As Blanchard had half reached toward his hip pocket. I ain't starting anything here. 
but I just want to tell you something. Be quick, then. Blanchard lifted one foot to step into the machine. Sure, Billy went on, without any diminution of his exasperating slowness. What I want to tell you is that I'm after you. Not now, when the strike's on, but sometime later I'm going to get you and give you the beating of your life. Blanchard looked Billy over with new interest and measuring eyes that sparkled with appreciation. You are a husky yourself, he said, but do you think you can do it? Sure, you're my meat. All right, then, my friend. Look me up after the strike is settled, and I'll give you a chance at me. Remember, Billy added, I've got you staked out. Blanchard nodded, smiled genially to the both of them, raised his hat to Saxon, and stepped into the machine. End of section 27「Section twenty eight of the Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book two, chapter thirteen. From now on to Saxon, life seemed bereft of its last reason and rhyme. It had become senseless, nightmarish. Anything irrational was possible. There was nothing stable in the anarchic flux of affairs that swept her on, she knew not to what catastrophic end. Had Billy been dependable, all would have still been well. With him to cling to, she would have faced everything fearlessly. But he had been whirled away from her in the prevailing madness. So radical was the change in him that he seemed almost an intruder in the house. Spiritually, he was such an intruder. Another man looked out of his eyes a man whose thoughts were of violence and hatred, a man to whom there was no good in anything, and who had become an ardent protagonist of the evil that was rampant and universal. This man could no longer condemn Bert, himself muttering vaguely of dynamite and sabotage and revolution. Saxon strove to maintain that sweetness and coolness of flesh and spirit that Billy had praised in the old days. Once only she lost control. He had been in a particularly ugly mood, and a final harshness and unfairness cut her to the quick. "'Who are you speaking to?' she flamed out at him. He was speechless and abashed, and could only stare at her face, which was white with anger. "'Don't you ever speak to me like that again, Billy,' she commanded. "'Ah, oh, can't you put up with a piece of bad temper?' he muttered, half apologetically, yet half defiantly. God knows, I've got enough to make me cranky. After he left the house, she flung herself on the bed and cried heartbrokenly. For she, who knew so thoroughly the humility of love, was a proud woman. Only the proud can be truly humble, and only the strong may know the fullness of gentleness. But what was the use, she demanded, of being proud and game when the only person in the world who mattered to her lost his own pride in gameness and fairness and gave her the worst share of their mutual trouble. And now, as she faced alone the deeper, organic hurt of the loss of her baby, 
she faced alone another, and, in a way, an even greater personal trouble. Perhaps she loved Billy nonetheless, but her love was changing into something less proud, less confident, less trusting. It was becoming shot through with pity, with the pity that is parent to contempt. Her own loyalty was threatening to weaken, and she shuddered and shrank from the contempt she could see creeping in. She struggled to steel herself to face the situation. Forgiveness stole into her heart, and she knew relief until the thought came that in the truest, highest love forgiveness should have no place. And again she cried, and continued her battle. After all, one thing was incontestable. This Billy was not the Billy she had loved. This Billy was another man, a sick man, and no more to be held responsible than a fever patient in the ravings of delirium. She must be Billy's nurse, without pride, without contempt, with nothing to forgive. Besides, he was really bearing the brunt of the fight, was in the thick of it, dizzy with the striking of blows and the blows he received. If fault there was, it lay elsewhere, somewhere in the tangled scheme of things that made men snarl over jobs like dogs over bones. Saxon arose and buckled on her armor again for the hardest fight of all in the world's arena, the woman's fight. She ejected from her thought all doubting and distrust. She forgave nothing, for there was nothing requiring forgiveness. She pledged herself to an absoluteness of belief that her love in Billy's was unsullied, unperturbed, severe as it had always been, as it would be when it came back again, after the world settled down once more to rational ways. That night when he came home, she proposed, as an emergency measure, that she should resume her needlework and help keep the pot boiling until the strike was over. But Billy would hear nothing of it. It's all right, he assured her repeatedly. There ain't no call for you to work. I'm going to get some money before the week is out, and I'll turn it over to you, and Saturday night we'll go to the show, a real show, no moving pictures. Harvey's nigger minstrels is coming to town. We'll go Saturday night. I'll have the money before that, as sure as beans is beans. Friday evening he did not come home to supper, which Saxon regretted, for Maggie Donahue had returned a pan of potatoes and two quarts of flour, borrowed the week before, and it was a hearty meal that awaited him. Saxon kept the stove going till nine o'clock, when, despite her reluctance, she went to bed. Her preference would have been to wait up, but she did not dare, knowing full well what the effect would be on him, did he come home in liquor. The clock had just struck one when she heard the click of the gate. Slowly, heavily, ominously, she heard him come up the steps and fumble with his key at the door. He entered the bedroom, and she heard him sigh as he sat down. She remained quiet, for she had learned the hypersensitiveness induced by drink, and was fastidiously careful not to hurt him even with the knowledge that she had lain awake for him. It was not easy. Her hands were clenched till the nails dented the palms, and her body was rigid in her passionate effort for control. Never 
had he come home as bad as this. Saxon, he called thickly, Saxon. She stirred and yawned. What is it, she asked. Won't you strike a light? My fingers is all thumbs. Without looking at him, she complied, but so violent was the nervous trembling of her hands that the glass chimney tinkled against the globe and the match went out. I ain't drunk, Saxon, he said in the darkness, a hint of amusement in his thick voice. I've only had two or three jolts of that sort. On her second attempt, with the lamp she succeeded. When she turned to look at him, she screamed with fright. Though she had heard his voice and knew him to be Billy, for the instant she did not recognize him. His face was a face she had never known, swollen, bruised, discolored. Every feature had been beaten out of all semblance of familiarity. One eye was entirely closed, the other showed through a narrow slit of blood-congested flesh. One ear seemed to have lost most of its skin. The whole face was a swollen pulp. His right jaw, in particular, was twice the size of his left. No wonder his speech had been thick, was her thought, as she regarded the fearfully cut and swollen lips that still bled. She was sickened by the sight, and her heart went out to him in a great wave of tenderness. She wanted to put her arms around him and cuddle and soothe him but her practical judgment bade otherwise. "'You poor, poor boy,' she cried. "'Tell me what you want me to do first. I don't know about such things.' "'If you could help me get my clothes off,' he suggested meekly and thickly. "'I got them on before I stiffened up.' "'And then hot water. That will be good,' she said. And she began gently drawing his coat sleeve over a puffed and helpless hand. I told you they was all thumbs, he grimaced, holding up his hand and squinting at it with a fraction of sight remaining to him. You sit and wait, she said, till I start the fire again and get hot water going. I won't be a minute. Then I'll finish getting your clothes off. From the kitchen, she could hear him muttering to himself, and when she returned, he was repeating over and over, We needed the money, Saxon, we needed the money. Drunken he was not, she could see that, and from his babbling she knew he was partly delirious. He was a surprise box, he wandered on, while she proceeded to undress him, and bit by bit she was able to piece together what had happened. He was an unknown from Chicago. They sprang him on me. The secretary of the Acme Club warned me I'd have my hands full, and I'd a won if I'd been in condition. But fifteen pounds off without training ain't condition. Then I'd been drinking pretty regular, and I didn't have my wind. But Saxon, stripping his undershirt, no longer hurt him. As with his face, she could not recognize his splendidly muscled back. The white sheath of silken skin was torn and bloody. The lacerations occurred oftenest in horizontal lines, though there were perpendicular lines as well. How did you get all that? she asked. The ropes. I was up against them more times than I like to remember. Gee, he certainly gave me mine. But I fooled him. He couldn't put me out. I lasted the twenty rounds. And I wanted to tell you he's got some marks to remember me by. If he ain't got a couple of knuckles broken in the left hand, I'm a geezer. 
Here, feel my head. Swollen, huh? Sure thing. He hit that more times than he's wishing he had right now. But, oh, what a lacing. What a lacing. I never had anything like it before. The Chicago Terror, they call him. I take my hat off to him. He's some bear. But I could have made him take the count if I'd been in condition and had my wind. Oh, ouch, watch out. It's like a boil. Fumbling at his waistband, Saxon's hand had come in contact with a brightly inflamed surface larger than a soup plate. That's from the kidney blows, Billy explained. He was a regular devil at it. Most every clench, like clockwork, down he'd chop one on me. It got so sore I was wincing, until I was groggy and didn't know much of anything. It ain't a knockout blow, you know, but it's awful wearing in a long fight. It takes the starch out of you. When his knees were bared, Saxon could see the skin across the kneecaps was broken and gone. The skin ain't made to stand a heavy fellow like me on the knees, he volunteered, and the rosin in the canvas cuts like Sam Hill. The tears were in Saxon's eyes, and she could have cried over the manhandled body of her beautiful sick boy. As she carried his pants across the room to hang them up, a jingle of money came from them. He called her back, and from the pocket drew forth a handful of silver. We needed the money, we needed the money, he kept muttering, as he vainly tried to count the coins, and Saxon knew that his mind was wandering again. It cut her to the heart, for she could not but remember the harsh thoughts that had threatened her loyalty during the week past. After all, Billy, the splendid physical man, was only a boy, her boy, and he had faced and endured all this terrible punishment for her, for the house and the furniture, that were their house and furniture. He said so now, when he scarcely knew what he said. He said, we needed the money. She was not so absent from his thoughts as she had fancied. Here, down to the naked, tie ribs of his soul, when he was half unconscious, the thought of her persisted was uppermost. We needed the money. We. The tears were trickling down her cheeks as she bent over him, and it seemed she had never loved him so much as now. Here, you count, he said, abandoning the effort and handing the money to her. How much do you make it? Nineteen dollars and thirty-five cents. That's right, the loser's end, twenty dollars. I had some drinks and treated a couple of the boys, and then there was car fare. If I'd won, I'd got a hundred. That's what I fought for. It put us on easy street for a while. You take it and keep it. It's better than nothing. In bed he could not sleep because of his pain, and hour by hour she worked over him, renewing the hot compresses over his bruises soothing the lacerations with witch-hazel and cold cream and the tenderest of fingertips. All the while, with broken intervals of groaning, he babbled on, living over the fight, seeking relief and telling her his trouble, voicing regret at the loss of the money, and crying out the hurt to his pride. Far worse than the sum of his physical hurts was his hurt pride. He couldn't put me away anyway, he had full swing at me in the times when I was too much in to get my hands up. The crowd was crazy. I showed him some stamina, 
There was times when he only rocked me, for I'd evaporated plenty of his steam for him in the opening rounds. I don't know how many times he dropped me. Things was getting too dreamy. Sometimes toward the end, I could see three of him in the ring at once, and I wouldn't know which to hit and which to duck. But I fooled him. When I couldn't see or feel, and when my knees was shaking and my head going like a merry-go-round, I'd fall safe in the clenches just the same. I bet the referee's arms is tired from dragging us apart. But what a lacing, what a lacing. Say, Saxon, where are you? Oh, there, huh? I guess I was dreaming. But say, let this be a lesson to you. I broke my word and went fighting, and see what I got? Look at me and take warning, so you won't make the same mistake and go making and selling fancy work again. But I fooled him, everybody. At the beginning, the betting was even. By the sixth round, the wise gazebos were offering two to one against me. I was licked from the first drop out of the box. Anybody could see that. But he couldn't put me down for the count. By the tenth round, they was offering even that I wouldn't last the round. And at the eleventh, they was offering I wouldn't last the fifteenth. And I lasted the whole twenty. But some punishment. I want to tell you, some punishment. Why, there was four rounds. I was in dreamland all the time. Only I kept on my feet and fought, or took the count to eight and got up, and stalled and covered and wanged away. I don't know what I'd done, except I must have done like that, because I wasn't there. I don't know a thing from the thirteenth, when he sent me to the mat on my head, till the eighteenth. Where was I? Oh, yes. I opened my eyes, or one eye, because I had only one that would open. And there I was in my corner, with the towels going and ammonia in my nose, and Bill Murphy with a chunk of ice at the back of my neck. And there, across the ring, I could see the Chicago Terror, and I had to do some thinking to remember I was fighting him. It was like I'd been away somewhere and just got back. What rounds is coming, I asked Bill. The eighteenth, says he. The hell, I says. What come of all the other rounds? The last I was fighting was in the thirteenth. You're a wonder, says Bill. You've been out for four rounds. Only nobody knows it except me. I've been trying to get you to quit all the time. Just then the gong sounds, and I can see the terror starting for me. Quit, says Bill, making a move to throw in the towel. Not on your life, I says. Drop it, Bill. But he went on, wanting me to quit. By that time the terror had come across to my corner, and was standing with his hands down looking at me. The referee was looking, too, and the house was that quiet, looking. You could hear a pin drop, and my head was getting some clearer, but not much. You can't win, Bill says. Watch me, says I, and with that I make a rush for the terror. Catching him unexpected. I'm that groggy I can't stand but I just keep a goin' walloping the terror clear across the ring to his corner where he slips and falls, and I fall on top of him. Say, that crowd goes crazy. Where was I? My head's still going round, I guess. It's buzzing like a swarm of bees. You had just fallen on top of him in the corner, Saxon prompted. Oh, yes, well, no sooner are we on our feet 
and I can't stand, I rush em the same way back across to my corner and fall on em. That was luck. We got up, and I'd have fallen only I clenched and held myself up by him. I got your goat, I says to him, and now I'm going to eat you up. I hadn't his goat, but I was playing to get a piece of it. And I got it, rushing him as soon as the referee drags us apart and fetching him a lucky wallop in the stomach that steadied him and made him almighty careful, too almighty careful. He was afraid to chance a mix with me. He thought I had more fight left in me than I had. So, you see, I got that much of his goat anyway. And he couldn't get me. He didn't get me. And in the twentieth, we stood in the middle of the ring and exchanged wallops even. Of course, I'd made a fine showing for a licked man, but he got the decision, which was right. But I fooled him. He couldn't get me. And I fooled the gazebos that was betting he would on short order. At last, as dawn came on, Billy slept. He groaned and moaned, his face twisting with pain, his body vainly moving and tossing in quest of easement. So this was prize-fighting, Saxon thought. It was much worse than she had dreamed. She had had no idea that such damage could be wrought with padded gloves. He must never fight again. Street rioting was preferable. She was wondering how much of his silk had been lost when he mumbled and opened his eyes. What is it? she asked, ere it became to her that his eyes were unseeing and that he was in delirium. Saxon, Saxon, he called. Yes, Billy, what is it? His hand fumbled over the bed where ordinarily it would have encountered her. Again he called her, and she cried her presence loudly in his ear. He sighed with relief and muttered brokenly, I had to do it. We needed the money. His eyes closed, and he slept more soundly, though his muttering continued. She had heard of congestion of the brain and was frightened. Then she remembered his telling her of the ice Billy Murphy had held against his head. Throwing a shawl over her head, she ran to the pile driver's home on 7th Street. The barkeeper had just opened and was sweeping out. From the refrigerator, he gave her all the ice she wished to carry, breaking it into convenient pieces for her. Back in the house, she applied the ice to the base of Billy's brain, placed hot irons to his feet, and bathed his head with witch hazel, made cool by resting on the ice. He slept in the darkened room until late afternoon, when, to Saxon's dismay, he insisted on getting up. Gotta make a show, and he explained. They ain't going to have the laugh on me. In torment he was helped by her to dress, and in torment he went forth from the house so that his world should have ocular evidence that the beating he had received did not keep him in bed. It was another kind of pride, different from a woman's, and Saxon wondered if it were the less admirable for that. End of section 28「Section twenty nine of the Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book two, chapter fourteen. In the days that followed, Billy's swelling went down. 
and the bruises passed away with surprising rapidity. The quick healing of the lacerations attested the healthiness of his blood. Only remained the black eyes, unduly conspicuous on a face as blonde as his. The discoloration was stubborn, persisting half a month, in which time happened diverse events of importance. Otto Frank's trial had been expeditious. Found guilty by a jury, notable for the business and professional men on it, the death sentence was passed upon him, and he was removed to San Quentin for execution. The case of Chester Johnson and the fourteen others had taken longer, but in the same week it too was finished. Chester Johnson was sentenced to be hanged. Two got life, three twenty years. Only two were acquitted. The remaining seven received terms from two to ten years. The effect on Saxon was to throw her into deep depression. Billy was made gloomy, but his fighting spirit was not subdued. Always some men killed in battle, he said. That's to be expected. But the way of sentencing them gets me. All found guilty was responsible for killing, or none was responsible. If all was, then they should get the same sentence. They ought to hang like Chester Johnson, or else he ought not to hang. i just like to know how the judge makes up his mind. It must be like making China lottery tickets. He plays hunches. He looks at a guy and waits for a spot or a number to come into his head. How else could he give Johnny Black four years and Cal Hutchin twenty years? He played the hunches as they came into his head, and it might just as easy have been the other way round. And Cal Hutchin got four years and Johnny Black twenty. I know both them boys. They hung out with the Tenth and Kirkham gang mostly, though sometimes they ran with my gang. We used to go swimming after school down to Sandy Beach on the marsh, and in the transit slip where they said the water was sixty feet deep, only it wasn't. And once, on a Thursday, we dug a lot of clams together and played hooky Friday to peddle them. And we used to go out on the rock wall and catch pogies and rock cod. One day, the day of the eclipse, Cal caught a perch half as big as a door. I've never seen such a fish and now he's got to wear the stripes for twenty years. Lucky he wasn't married. If he don't get the consumption, he'll be an old man when he comes out. Cal's mother wouldn't let him go swimming, and whenever she suspected, she always licked his hair with her tongue. If it tasted salty, he got a beaten. But he was on to himself. Coming home, he'd jump somebody's front fence and hold his head under a faucet. I used to dance with Chester Johnson, Saxon said, and I knew his wife, Kitty Brady, long, long ago. She had next place at the table to me in the paper box factory. She's gone to San Francisco to her married sisters. She's going to have a baby, too. She was awfully pretty, and there was always a string of fellows after her. The effect of the conviction in severe sentences was a bad one on the Union men. Instead of being disheartening, it intensified the bitterness. Billy's repentance for having fought, and the sweetness and affection which had flashed up in the days of Saxon's nursing of him, were blotted out. At home he scowled and brooded, 
while his talk took on the tone of Bert's in the last days ere that Mohegan died. Also, Billy stayed away from home longer hours and was again steadily drinking. Saxon well-nigh abandoned hope. Almost was she steeled to the inevitable tragedy which her morbid fancy painted in a thousand guises. Often it was of Billy being brought home on a stretcher. Sometimes it was a call to the telephone in the corner grocery and the curt information by a strange voice that her husband was lying in the receiving hospital or the morgue. And when the mysterious horse-poisoning cases occurred, and when the residence of one of the teeming magnets was half destroyed by dynamite, she saw Billy in prison, or wearing stripes, or mounting to the scaffold at San Quentin, while at the same time she could see the little cottage on Pine Street besieged by newspaper reporters and photographers. Yet her lively imagination failed altogether to anticipate the real catastrophe. Harmon, the fireman lodger, passing through the kitchen on his way out to work, had paused to tell Saxon about the previous day's train wreck in the Alviso marshes, and of how the engineer, imprisoned under the overturned engine and unhurt, being drowned by the rising tide, had begged to be shot. Billy came in at the end of the narrative, and from the somber light in his heavy-lidded eyes, Saxon knew he had been drinking. He glowered at Harmon, and without greeting to him or Saxon, leaned his shoulder against the wall. Harmon felt the awkwardness of the situation, and did his best to appear oblivious. I was just telling your wife, he began, but was savagely interrupted. I don't care what you was telling her, but I got something to tell you, Mr. Man. My wife's made up your bed too many times to suit me. Billy, Saxon cried, her face scarlet with resentment and hurt and shame. Billy ignored her. Harmon was saying, I don't understand. Well, I don't like your mug, Billy informed him. You're standing on your foot. Get off of it. Get out. Beat it. Do you understand that? I don't know what's gotten into him, Saxon gasped hurriedly to the fireman. He's not himself. Oh, I'm so ashamed, so ashamed. Billy turned on her. Shut your mouth and keep out of this. But Billy, she remonstrated. And get out of here. You go into the other room. Here now, Harmon broke in. This is a fine way to treat a fellow. I've given you too much rope as it is, was Billy's answer. I've paid my rent regularly, haven't I? I ought to knock your block off for you. Don't see any reason I shouldn't, for that matter. If you do anything like that, Billy, Saxon began. You still here? Well, if you won't go into the other room, I'll see that you do. His hand clutched her arm. For one instant she resisted his strength, and in that instant the flesh crushed under his fingers. She realized the fullness of his strength. In the front room, she could only lie back in the Morris chair sobbing, and listen to what occurred in the kitchen. I'll stay to the end of the week, the fireman was saying. I've paid in advance. Don't make no mistake, came Billy's voice, so slow that it was almost draw, yet quivering with rage. You can't get out too quickly. If you want to stay healthy, you and your traps with you. I'm likely to start something any moment. 
Oh, I know you're a slugger, the fireman's voice began. Then came the unmistakable impact of a blow, the crash of glass, a scuffle on the back porch, and finally the heavy bumps of a body down the steps. She heard Billy re-enter the kitchen, move about, and knew he was sweeping up the broken glass of the kitchen door. Then he washed himself at the sink, whistling as he dried his face and hands, and walked into the front room. She did not look at him. She was too sick and sad. He paused irresolutely, seeming to make up his mind. I'm going uptown, he stated. There's a meeting of the union. If I don't come back, it'll be because that geezer's sworn out a warrant. He opened the front door and paused. She knew he was looking at her. Then the door closed, and she heard him go down the steps. Saxon was stunned. She did not think. She did not know what to think. The whole thing was incomprehensible, incredible. She lay back in the chair, her eyes closed, her mind almost a blank, crushed by a leaden feeling that the end had come to everything. The voices of children playing in the street aroused her. Night had fallen. She groped her way to a lamp and lighted it. In the kitchen she stared, lips trembling, at the pitiful, half-prepared meal. The fire had gone out. The water had boiled away from the potatoes. When she lifted the lid, a burnt smell arose. Methodically she scraped and cleaned the pot, putting things in order, and peeled and sliced the potatoes for next day's frying. And just as methodically she went to bed. Her lack of nervousness, her placidity, was abnormal, so abnormal that she closed her eyes and was almost immediately asleep. Nor did she awaken till the sunshine was streaming into the room. It was the first night she and Billy had slept apart. She was amazed that she had not lain awake worrying about him. She lay with eyes wide open, scarcely thinking, until pain in her arm attracted her attention. It was where Billy had gripped her. On examination, she found the bruised flesh fearfully black and blue. She was astonished, not by the spiritual fact that such bruise had been administered by the one she loved most in the world, but by the sheer physical fact that an instant's pressure had inflicted so much damage. The strength of a man was a terrible thing. Quite impersonally, she found herself wondering if Charlie Long were as strong as Billy. It was not until she dressed and built the fire that she began to think about more immediate things. Billy had not returned. Then he was arrested. What was she to do? Leave him in jail? Go away and start life afresh? Of course it was impossible to go on living with a man who had behaved as he had. But then came another thought. Was it impossible? After all, he was her husband. For better or worse, the phrase reiterated itself a monotonous accompaniment to her thoughts at the back of her consciousness. To leave him was to surrender. She carried the matter before the tribunal of her mother's memory. No, Daisy would never have surrendered. Daisy was a fighter. Then she, Saxon, must fight. Besides, and she acknowledged it, readily, though in a cool, dead way, besides, Billy was better than most husbands, better than any other husband she had heard of. 
she concluded, as she remembered many of his earlier nicenesses and finenesses, and especially his eternal chant, Nothing is too good for us. The Roberts ain't on the cheap. At eleven o'clock she had a caller. It was Bud Struthers, Billy's mate, on strike duty. Billy, he told her, had refused bail, refused a lawyer. He asked to be tried by the court and had pleaded guilty and had received a sentence of sixty dollars or thirty days. Also, he had refused to let the boys pay his fine. He's clean loony, Struthers summed up. Won't listen to reason. Says he'll serve out his time. He's been tacking up too regular, I guess. His wheels are buzzing. Here, he give me this note for you. Anytime you want anything, send for me. The boys all stand by Billy's wife. You belong to us, you know. How are you off for money? Proudly she disclaimed any need for money, and not until her visitor departed did she read Billy's note. Dear Saxon, Bud Struthers is going to give you this. Don't worry about me. I'm going to take my medicine. I deserve it, you know that. I guess I am gone bughouse. Just the same, I am sorry for what I done. Don't come to see me. I don't want you to. If you need money, the union will give you some. The business agent is all right. I will be out in a month. Now, Saxon, you know I love you. Just say to yourself that you forgive me this time, and you won't never have to do it again. Billy Bud Struthers was followed by Maggie Donahue and Mrs. Olson, who paid neighborly calls of cheer and were tactful in their efforts of help and in studiously avoiding more references than was necessary to Billy's predicament. In the afternoon James Harmon arrived. He limped slightly, and Saxon divined that he was doing his best to minimize that evidence of hurt. She tried to apologize to him, but he would not listen. I don't blame you, Mrs. Roberts, he said. I know it wasn't your doing, but your husband wasn't just himself, I guess. He was fighting mad on general principles, and it was just my luck to get in the way, that was all. But just the same, the fireman shook his head. I know all about it. I used to punish the drink myself, and I'd done some funny things in them days, and I'm sorry I swore that warrant out and testified. But I was hot in the collar. I'm cooled down now, and I'm sorry I'd done it. You're awfully good and kind, she said, and then began hesitantly on what was bothering her. You, you can't stay now with him away, you know. Yes, that wouldn't do, would it? I'll tell you, I'll pack up right now, and skin out, and then before six o'clock I'll send a wagon for my things. Here's the key to the kitchen door. Much as he demurred, she compelled him to receive back the unexpired portion of his rent. He shook her hand heartily at leaving, and tried to get her to promise to call upon him for a loan any time she might be in need. It's all right, he assured her. I'm married and got two boys. One of them's got his lungs touched, and she's with him down in Arizona, camping out. The railroad helped with the passes. As he went down the steps, she wondered that so kind a man should be in so madly cruel a world. The Donahue boy threw in a spare evening paper, and Saxon found half a column devoted to Billy. 
It was not nice. The fact that he had stood up in the police court with his eyes blackened from some other fray was noted. He was described as a bully, a hoodlum, a roughneck, a professional slugger, whose presence in the ranks was a disgrace to organized labor. The assault he had pleaded guilty of was atrocious and unprovoked, and if he were a fair sample of a striking teamster, the only wise thing for Oakland to do was to break up the union and drive every member from the city. And finally the paper complained at the mildness of the sentence. It should have been six months at least. The judge was quoted as expressing regret that he had been unable to impose a six-month sentence, this inability being due to the condition of the jails, already crowded beyond capacity by the many cases of assault committed in the course of the various strikes. That night in bed Saxon experienced her first loneliness. Her brain seemed in a whirl, and her sleep was broken by vain gropings for the form of Billy she imagined at her side. At last she lighted the lamp and lay staring at the ceiling, wide-eyed, conning over and over the details of the disaster that had overwhelmed her. She could forgive, and she could not forgive. The blow to her love-life had been too savage, too brutal. Her pride was too lacerated to permit her wholly to return in memory to the other Billy whom she loved. Wine in, wit out, she repeated to herself. But the phrase could not absolve the man who had slept by her side, and to whom she had consecrated herself. She wept in the loneliness of the all-too-spacious bed, strove to forget Billy's incomprehensible cruelty, even pillowed her cheek with numb fondness against the bruise of her arm. But still resentment burned within her, a steady flame of protest against Billy and all that Billy had done. Her throat was parched, a dull ache never ceased in her breast, and she was oppressed by a feeling of goneness. Why, why? And from the puzzle of the world came no solution. In the morning she received a visit from Sarah, the second in all the period of her marriage, and she could easily guess her sister-in-law's ghoulish errand. No exertion was required for the assertion of all Saxon's pride. She refused to be in the slightest on the defensive. There was nothing to defend, nothing to explain. Everything was all right, and it was nobody's business anyway. This attitude but served to vex Sarah. I warned you, and you can't say I didn't, her diatribe ran. I always knew he was no good, a jailbird, a hoodlum, a slugger. My heart sunk into my boots when I heard you was running with a prize-fighter. I told you so at the time, but no, you wouldn't listen, you with your highfalutin' notions and more pairs of shoes than any decent woman should have. You knew better'n me, and I said then to Tom, I said, it's all up with Saxon now. Them was my very words. Them that touches pitch is defiled. If you had only married Charlie Long, then the family wouldn't have been disgraced. And this is only the beginning, mark me, only the beginning. Where it will end, God knows. He'll kill somebody yet, that pug-ugly of yourn, and be hanged for it. You wait and see, that's all. And then you'll remember my words. 
as you make your bed, so you will lay in it. Best bed I ever had, Saxon commented. So you can say, so you can say, Sarah snorted. I wouldn't trade it for a queen's bed, Saxon added. A jailbird's bed, Sarah rejoined witheringly. Oh, it's the style, Saxon retorted airily. Everybody's getting a taste of jail. Wasn't Tom arrested at some street meeting of the socialists? Everybody goes to jail these days. The barb struck home. But Tom was acquitted, Sarah hastened to proclaim. Just the same, he lay in jail all night without bail. This was unanswerable, and Sarah executed her favorite tactic of attack in flank. A nice come down for you, I must say. That was raised straight and right and cutting up dildos with a lodger. Who says so? Saxon blazed, with an indignation quickly mastered. Oh, a blind man can read between the lines. A lodger, a young married woman with no self-respect, and a prize-fighter for a husband. What else would they fight about? Just like any family quarrel, wasn't it? Saxon smiled placidly. Sarah was shocked into momentary speechlessness. And I want you to understand it, Saxon continued. It makes a woman proud to have men fight over her. I am proud, do you hear? I am proud. I want you to tell them so. I want you to tell all your neighbors. Tell everybody. I am no cow. Men like me. Men fight for me. Men go to jail for me. What is a woman in the world for if it isn't to have men like her? Now go, Sarah, go at once, and tell everybody what you've read between the lines. Tell them Billy's a jailbird, and that I'm a bad woman whom all men desire. Shout it out, and good luck to you, and get out of my house, and never put your feet in it again. You are too decent a woman to come here. You might lose your reputation, and think of your children. Now get out. Go. Not until Sarah had taken an amazed and horrified departure, did Saxon fling herself on the bed in a convulsion of tears. She had been ashamed before, merely of Billy's inhospitality, and surliness and unfairness. But she could see, now, the light in which others looked on the affair. It had not entered Saxon's head. She was confident that it had not entered Billy's. She knew his attitude from the first. Always he had opposed taking a lodger because of his proud faith that his wife should not work. Only hard times had compelled his consent, and now that she looked back, almost had she inveigled him into consenting. But all this did not alter the viewpoint the neighborhood must hold, that everyone who had ever known her must hold, and for this too Billy was responsible. It was more terrible than all the other things he had been guilty of put together. She could never look anyone in the face again. Maggie Donahue and Mrs. Olson had been very kind, but of what must they have been thinking all the time they talked with her? And what must they have said to each other? What was everybody saying? Over the front gates and back fences, the men standing on the corners or talking in the saloons. Later, exhausted by her grief, when the tears no longer fell, she grew more impersonal, and dwelt on the disasters that had befallen so many women since the strike troubles began. Otto Frank's wife, Henderson's widow, 
pretty Kitty Brady, Mary, all the womanfolk of the other workmen who were now wearing the stripes in San Quentin. Her world was crashing about her ears. No one was exempt. Not only had she not escaped, but hers was the worst disgrace of all. Desperately, she tried to hug the delusion that she was asleep, that it was all a nightmare, and that soon the alarm would go off and she would get up and cook Billy's breakfast so that he could go to work. She did not leave the bed that day, nor did she sleep. Her brain whirled on and on, now dwelling at insistent length upon her misfortunes, now pursuing the most fantastic ramifications of what she considered her disgrace, and again going back to her childhood and wandering through endless trivial detail. She worked at all the tasks she had ever done, performing, in fancy, the myriads of mechanical movements peculiar to each occupation, shaping and pasting in the paper-box factory, ironing in the laundry, weaving in the jute mill, peeling fruit in the cannery, and countless boxes of scalded tomatoes. She attended all her dances and all her picnics over again, went through her school days, recalling the face and name and seat of every schoolmate, endured the gray bleakness of the years in the orphan asylum, revisioned every memory of her mother, every tale, and relived all her life with Billy. But ever, and here the torment lay, she was drawn back from these far wanderings to her present trouble, with its parch in the throat, its ache in the breast, and its gnawing, vacant goneness. End of section 29 Section 30 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 15 All that night Saxon lay, unsleeping, without taking off her clothes, and when she arose in the morning and washed her face, and dressed her hair, she was aware of a strange numbness, of a feeling of constriction about her head, as if it were bound by a heavy band of iron. It seemed like a dull pressure upon her brain. It was the beginning of an illness that she did not know as illness. All she knew was that she felt queer. It was not fever. It was not cold. Her bodily health was as it should be, and... When she thought about it, she put her condition down to nerves, nerves, according to her ideas, and the ideas of her class, being unconnected with disease. She had a strange feeling of loss of self, of being a stranger to herself, and the world in which she moved seemed a vague and shrouded world. It lacked sharpness of definition. Its customary vividness was gone. She had lapses of memory and was continually finding herself doing unplanned things. Thus, to her astonishment, she came to, in the backyard, hanging up the week's wash. She had no recollection of having done it, yet it had been done precisely as it should have been done. She had boiled the sheets and pillow slips and the table linen. Billy's woolens had been washed in warm water only, with the homemade soap, the recipe which Mercedes had given her. On investigation, she found that she had eaten a mutton chop for breakfast. 
This meant that she had been to the butcher shop, yet she had no memory of having gone. Curiously, she went into the bedroom. The bed was made up and everything in order. As twilight came upon herself in the front room, seated by the window, crying in an ecstasy of joy. At first she did not know what this joy was. Then it came to her that it was because she had lost her baby. A blessing, a blessing, she was chanting aloud, wringing her hands. But with joy, she knew it was with joy that she wrung her hands. The days came and went. She had little notion of time. Sometimes, centuries agone, it seemed to her it was since Billy had gone to jail. At other times, it was no more than the night before. But through it all, two ideas persisted. She must not go to see Billy in jail. It was a blessing she had lost her baby. Once Bud Struthers came to see her. She sat in the front room and talked with him, noting with fascination that there were fringes to the heels of his trousers. Another day, the business agent of the union called. She told him, as she had told Bud Struthers, that everything was all right, that she needed nothing, that she could get along comfortably until Billy came out. A fear began to haunt her. When he came out, no, it must not be. There must not be another baby. It might live. No, no, a thousand times no. It must not be. She would run away first. She would never see Billy again. Anything but that. Anything but that. This fear persisted. In her nightmare-ridden sleep, it became an accomplished fact, so that she would awake trembling in a cold sweat, crying out. Her sleep had become wretched. Sometimes she was convinced that she did not sleep at all. And she knew that she had insomnia, and remembered that it was of insomnia her mother had died. She came to herself one day, sitting in Dr. Hentley's office. He was looking at her in a puzzled way. Got plenty to eat, he was asking. She nodded. Any serious trouble? She shook her head. Everything's all right, doctor, except... Yes, yes, he encouraged. And then she knew why she had come. Simply, explicitly, she told him. He shook his head slowly. It can't be done, little woman, he said. Oh, but it can, she cried. I know it can. I don't mean that, he answered. I mean I can't tell you. I dare not. It is against the law. There's a doctor in Leavenworth prison right now for that. In vain she pleaded with him. He insisted his own wife and children whose existence forbade his imperiling. Besides, there is no likelihood now, he told her. But there will be. There is sure to be, she urged. But he could only shake his head sadly. Why do you want to know, he questioned finally. Saxon poured her heart out to him. She told him of her first year of happiness with Billy and of the hard times caused by the labor troubles, of the change in Billy so that there was no love life left, of her own deep horror. Not if it died, she concluded. She could go through that again. But if it should live, Billy would soon be out of jail, and then the danger would begin. It was only a few words. She would never tell anyone. Wild horses could not drag it out of her. But Dr. Hentley continued to shake his head. 
I can't tell you, little woman. It's a shame, but I can't take the risk. My hands are tied. Our laws are all wrong. I have to consider those who are dear to me. It was when she got up to go that he faltered. Come here, he said. Sit closer. He prepared the whisper in her ear, then, with a sudden excess of caution, crossed the room swiftly, opened the door, and looked out. When he sat down again, he drew his chair so close to hers that the arms touched, and when he whispered, his beard tickled her ear. No, no, he shut her off when she tried to voice her gratitude. I have told you nothing. You were here to consult me about your general health. You are run down, out of condition. As he talked, he moved her toward the door. When he opened it, a patient for the dentist in the adjoining office was standing in the hall. Dr. Hentley lifted his voice. What you need is that tonic I prescribed. Remember that. And don't pamper your appetite when it comes back. Eat strong, nourishing food and beefsteak. Plenty of beefsteak. And don't cook it to a cinder. Good day. At times the silent cottage became unendurable, and Saxon would throw a shawl about her head and walk out the Oakland Mole or cross the railroad yards and marshes to Sandy Beach, where Billy had said he used to swim. Also, by going out the transit slip, by climbing down the piles on a precarious ladder of iron spikes, and by crossing a boom of logs, she won access to the rock wall that extended far out into the bay, and that served as a barrier between the mudflats and the tide-scoured channel of Oakland Estuary. Here the fresh sea breezes blew, and Oakland sank down to a smudge of smoke behind her, while across the bay she could see the smudge that represented San Francisco. Ocean steamships passed up and down the estuary, and lofty masted ships towed by red-stacked tugs. She gazed at the sailors on the ships, wondered on what far voyages and to what far lands they went wondered what freedoms were theirs. Or were they grit in by as remorseless and cruel a world as the dwellers in Oakland were? Were they as unfair, as unjust, as brutal in their dealing with their fellows as were the city dwellers? It did not seem so, and sometimes she wished herself on board, outbound, going anywhere she cared not where, so long as it was away from the world to which she had given her best and which had trampled her in return. She did not know always when she left the house, nor where her feet took her. Once she came to herself in a strange part of Oakland. The street was wide and lined with rows of shade trees. Velvet lawns, broken only by cement sidewalks, ran down to the gutters. The houses stood apart and were large. In her vocabulary they were mansions. What had shocked her to consciousness of herself was a young man in the driver's seat of a touring car, standing at the curb. He was looking at her curiously, and she recognized him as Roy Blanchard, whom, in front of the forum, Billy had threatened to whip. Beside the car, bareheaded, stood another young man. He, too, she remembered. He it was, at the Sunday picnic, where she first met Billy, who had thrust his cane between the legs of the flying foot-racer 
and precipitated the free-for-all fight. Like Blanchard, he was looking at her curiously, and she became aware that she had been talking to herself. The babble of her lips still beat in her ears. She blushed, a rising tide of shame heating her face, and quickened her pace. Blanchard sprang out of the car and came to her with a lifted hat. "'Is there anything the matter?' he asked. She shook her head, and though she had stopped, she evinced her desire to go on. "'I know you,' he said, studying her face. "'You are with the striker who promised me a lickin'. "'He is my husband,' she said. "'Oh, good for him.' He regarded her pleasantly and frankly. "'But about yourself, is there anything I can do for you? "'Something is the matter.' "'No, I'm all right,' she answered. "'I have been sick,' she lied, "'for she never dreamed of connecting her queerness with sickness.' "'You look tired,' he pressed her. "'I can take you in the machine and run you anywhere you want. "'It won't be any trouble. I've plenty of time.' Saxon shook her head. "'If, if you tell me where I can catch the Eighth Street cars, "'I don't often come to this part of town.' He told her where to find an electric car and what transfers to make, and she was surprised at the distance she had wandered. Thank you, she said, and goodbye. Sure I can't do anything now? Sure. Well, goodbye, he smiled good-humoredly, and tell that husband of yours to keep in good condition. I'm liable to make him need it all when he tangles up with me. Oh, but you can't fight with him, she warned. You mustn't. You haven't got a show. Good for you, he admired. That's the way for a woman to stand up for her man. Now the average woman would be so afraid he was going to get licked. But I'm not afraid for him. It's for you. He's a terrible fighter. You wouldn't have any chance. It would be like, like, like taking candy from a baby, Blanchard finished for her. Yes, she nodded. That's just what he would call it. And whenever he tells you you're standing on your foot, watch out for him. Now I must go. Goodbye, and thank you again. She went on down the sidewalk, his cheery goodbye ringing in her ears. He was kind, she admitted it honestly, yet he was one of the clever ones, one of the masters who, according to Billy, were responsible for all the cruelty to labor, for the hardships of the women, for the punishment of the labor men who were wearing stripes in San Quentin or were in death cells awaiting the scaffold. Yet he was kind, sweet-natured, clean, good. She could read his character in his face. But how could this be, if he were responsible for so much evil? She shook her head wearily. There was no explanation, no understanding of this world, which destroys little babes and bruises women's breasts. As for her straying into that neighborhood of fine residences, she was unsurprised. It was in line with her queerness. She did so many things without knowing that she did them. She must be careful. It was better to wander on the marshes and the rock wall. Especially she liked the rock wall. There was a freedom about it, a wide spaciousness, that she found herself instinctively trying to breathe holding her arms out to embrace and make part of herself. It was a more natural world, a more rational world. She could understand it, 
understand the green crabs with white bleached claws that scuttled before her and which she could see pasturing on green weeded rocks when the tide was low here hopelessly man-made as the great wall was nothing seemed artificial there were no men here no laws nor conflicts of men the tide flowed and ebbed the sun rose and set regularly each afternoon the brave west wind came romping in through the golden gate darkening the water cresting tiny wavelets making the sailboats fly everything ran with frictionless order everything was free firewood lay about for the taking no man sold it by the stack small boys fished with poles from the rocks with no one to drive them away for trespass catching fish as billy had caught fish as cal hutchins had caught fish billy had told her of the great perch cal hutchins caught on the day of the eclipse when he had little dreamed the heart of his manhood would be spent in convict's garb and here was food food that was free she watched the small boys on a day when she had eaten nothing and emulated them gathering mussels from the rocks at low water cooking them by placing them among the coals of a fire she built on top of the wall they tasted particularly good she learned to knock the small oysters from the rocks and once she found a string of fresh-caught fish some small boy had forgotten to take home with him here drifted evidence of man's sinister handiwork from a distance from the cities one flood tide she found the water covered with muskmelons they bobbed and bumped along up the estuary in countless thousands where they stranded against the rocks she was able to get them but each and every melon she had patiently tried scores of them had been spoiled by a sharp gash that led into salt water she could not understand she asked an old portuguese woman gathering driftwood they do it the people who have too much the old woman explained straightening her labor stiffened back with such an effort that almost saxon could hear it crack the old woman's black eyes flashed angrily and her wrinkled lips drawn tightly across the toothless gums wry with bitterness the people that have too much it is to keep up the price they throw them overboard in san francisco but why don't they give them away to the poor people saxon asked they must keep up the price but the poor people cannot buy them anyway saxon objected it would not hurt the price the old woman shrugged her shoulders i do not know it is their way they chop each melon so that the poor people cannot fish them out and eat anyway they do the same with the oranges with the apples ah the fishermen there's a trust when the boat catches too much fish the trust throws them overboard from fishermen's wharf boatloads and boatloads and boatloads of the beautiful fish and the beautiful good fish sink and are gone and no one gets them yet they are dead and only good to eat fish are very good to eat and saxon could not understand a world that did such things a world in which some men possessed so much food that they threw it away paying men for their labor of spoiling it before they threw it away and in the same world so many people who did not have enough food whose babies died because their mother's milk 
was not nourishing, whose young men fought and killed one another for the chance to work, whose old men and women went to the poorhouse because there was no food for them in the little shacks they wept at leaving. She wondered if all the world were that way, and remembered Mercedes's tales. Yes, all the world was that way. Had not Mercedes seen ten thousand families starve to death in that faraway India, when, as she has said, her own jewels that she wore would have fed and saved them all? It was the poorhouse and the salt vats for the stupid, jewels and automobiles for the clever ones. She was one of the stupid. She must be. The evidence all pointed that way. Yet Saxon refused to accept it. She was not stupid. Her mother had not been stupid, nor had the pioneer stock before her. Still it must be so. Here she sat, nothing to eat at home, her love husband changed to a brute beast and lying in jail, her arms and her heart empty of the babe that would have been there if only the stupid ones had not made a shambles of her front yard in their wrangling over jobs. She sat there, racking her brain, the smudge of Oakland at her back, staring across the bay at the smudge of San Francisco. Yet the sun was good, the wind was good, as was the keen salt air in her nostrils. The blue sky, flecked with clouds, was good. All the natural world was right and sensible and beneficent. It was the stupid man-world that was wrong and mad and horrible. Why were the stupid stupid? Was it a law of God? No, it could not be. God had made the wind and air and sun. The man-world was made by man, and a rotten job it was. Yet, and she remembered it well, the teaching in the orphan asylum. God had made everything. Her mother, too, had believed this, had believed in this God. Things could not be different. It was ordained. For a time Saxon sat crushed, helpless. Then smoldered protest, revolt. Vainly she asked why. God had it in for her. What had she done to deserve such a fate? She briefly reviewed her life in quest of deadly sins committed, and found them not. She had obeyed her mother, obeyed Caddy, the saloon-keeper, and Caddy's wife, obeyed the matron and the other women in the orphan asylum, obeyed Tom when she came to live in his house and never run in the streets because he didn't wish her to. At school she had always been honorably promoted and never had her deportment report varied from one hundred percent. She had worked from the day she left school to the day of her marriage. She had been a good worker, too. The little Jew who ran the paper-box factory had almost wept when she quit. It was the same at the cannery. She was among the high-line weavers when the jute mill closed down. And she had kept straight. It was not as if she had been ugly or unattractive. She had known her temptations and encountered her dangers. The fellows had been crazy about her. They had run after her, fought over her, in a way to turn most girls' heads. But she had kept straight. And then had come Billy, her reward. She had devoted herself to him, to his house, to all that would nourish his love, and now she and Billy were sinking down into this senseless vortex of misery and heartbreak of the man-made world. No, God was not responsible. She could have made a better world herself, 
a finer, squarer world. This being so, then there was no God. God could not make a botch. The matron had been wrong. Her mother had been wrong. There was no immortality, and Bert, wild and crazy Bert, falling at her front gate with his foolish death cry was right. One was a long time dead. Looking thus at life, shorn of its super-rational sanctions, Saxon floundered into the morass of pessimism. There was no justification for right conduct in the universe, no square deal for her who had earned reward, for the millions who worked like animals, died like animals, and were a long time and forever dead. Like the hosts of more learned thinkers before her, she concluded that the universe was unmoral and without concern for men. And now she sat, crushed, in greater helplessness than when she had included God in the scheme of injustice. As long as God was, there was always a chance for a miracle, for some supernatural intervention, some rewarding with ineffable bliss. With God missing, the world was a trap. Life was a trap. She was like a linnet, caught by small boys and imprisoned in a cage. That was because the linnet was stupid. But she rebelled. She fluttered and beat her soul against the hard face of things, as did the linnet against the bars of wire. She was not stupid. She did not belong in the trap. She would fight her way out of the trap. There must be such a way out. When canal boys and rail splitters, the lowliest of the stupid lowly, as she had read in her school history, could find their way out and become presidents of the nation, and rule over even the clever ones in their automobiles, then she could find her way out and win to the tiny reward she craved. Billy, a little love, a little happiness. She would not mind that the universe was unmoral, that there was no God, no immortality. She was willing to go back into the black grave and remain in its blackness forever, to go into the salt vats and let the young men cut her dead flesh to sausage meat, if, if only, she could get her small meat of happiness first. How she would work for that happiness! How she would appreciate it, make the most of each least particle of it! But how was she to do it? Where was the path? She could not vision it. Her eyes showed her only the smudge of San Francisco, the smudge of Oakland, where men were breaking heads and killing one another, where babies were dying, born and unborn, and where women were weeping with bruised breasts. End of section 30